out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American producer and songwriter. It is the one and only Martin B.C., who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Well known for his life in recording and his studio. He's recorded such people as Sonic Youth, The Swans, John Zorn, Material, Bill Laswell, The Dresden Dolls and many, many more bands. Um, He started the um, BC studio, initially named OAO, Operation All Out Studios, with Bill Laswell and also Brian Eno in 1981. It's now become, as I said, BC Studio, which is still running and has um, been very prolific over the last 40 years. Plus, he's uh, got a very prolific solo album career. So uh, do check it out. Anyway, this is the interview. And after a long time chatting about the studio and the interior of it, because it's an old industrial building in New York, we got down to that other fascinating subject, which was the early formative years. Martin, it's over to you. Yeah, I think that the first thing that happened was I discovered things that we would now call the 60s. Yes. You know, so for instance, like uh, Jimi Hendrix. Um, I mean, to me, Woodstock was pretty fascinating, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about like when we're, we're, you know, 1973, 1974, um, even though those, the 70s were, were, were bubbling up, um, the sixties were still hanging on. So I really came into it, um, during, I mean, I came into sort of the, the, the wake really of, of, of the sixties. So I was, a uh, you know, fat, I was, a I was obsessive about Jimi Hendrix, for instance, and I listened mm-hmm. to like mothers, mothers of invention and like Frank Zappa. Um, and you know, I, I, in my personal sensibility, I messed around a little bit with being a hippie. Yes. Um, it, it eventually, I guess I still do. And eventually it kind of, um, it kind of morphed. I realized recently that there was a sort of hippie punk hybrid that, that was kind of evident, at least in New York city in, um, in the late seventies and, and, and early eighties. And I also went on a, on a tour as a, as a roadie for the band Gong this guy, David Allen, who's an Australian who, who, who was living in uh, London at the time. Yes. And uh, that, that's associated with the, the British psychedelics movement of like a soft machine and stuff like that. And so that, I was a roadie on that tour. So that was, so even though I was a, a little bit part of this sort of generation X punk um, kind of being against the Woodstock generation, like I was kind of, you know, I was, I was aligned a little bit with like anti hippie animus, but, but, you know, I'm very moderate. So I was like, you know, I, I never get, let it get the best of me. I didn't really hate anyone. Uh, and I actually messed around with that. And actually I felt I appreciated aspects of that in my high school. I also did, but I was really trying to ignore the seventies. Um, I kind of, uh, I was definitely part of like the disco sucks. Oh kind of. yes, but, <laughs> but but did your your parents though? Because I mean, because you're a bit slightly older than me, but not by a lot. But were you? Because because were your parents? I mean, you, you they were Argentinian, weren't they? But they were sort of quite culturally advanced. I say advanced. I'm not sure if that's the right term. But you know, they were. They, yeah, yeah they, I, I, I do know what you mean. You, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they were 
sort of uh, sophisticated. Um, I mean, I actually really wrote, ah, damn. Oh, are you still there? I'm looking at a door. Nice Sorry. Door. I'm here. Hope, I, hope I, didn't, I didn't blow everything, right? No, that's fine. We're, we're you relaxed. You edit all that out? You can, always talk, you can edit that out, I guess. Yes, there's just there's just a bit of space there. That's cool. That's cool. So yes. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, they, they were. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say. I mean, that was the beginning of my musical rebellion. I would say, is uh, I was there was a point there where I was just like grossed out by classical music, and I was grossed out by going to the Philharmonic because my my mom my mom was a concert pianist, and. Um, uh, you know, pretty um, accomplished. She toured all over the United States and the Soviet Union and China. And, you know, she was Argentinian. Um, and uh, so I got music lessons. I got taken. We had season tickets to the New York Philharmonic. And we used to go like every Thursday during the season. And every every other Monday, uh, we'd go to the Metropolitan Opera. Yes. And, this kind and, of must um, have rubbed off on you quite a bit in some way, having well, that kind of... Well, yeah, well, that's something that that honestly, even now, I'm still wondering about because it's it's not clear. Sometimes you you absorb things without being conscious of them. Um, they affect affect how you hear things. As I've wondered, I really have. A, I can do many different things sonically, but I do a predilection pre uh, uh, predilection for lots of layers. Often, people will say that the stuff I do ends up sounding more orchestral than it might otherwise. And maybe what might even use that word. And I think that there's in my ear is just because I, I sat through so many, like uh, so many symphony uh, orchestra performances, you know, countless um, that. Uh, and, and my mom would also practice at piano every night in, in the apartment, like usually after bedtime or nearing bedtime, mm. you know, at least a couple hours every night. So I was listening to piano all the time. Um, also, yeah, the opera. And, and seeing those those fabulous um, productions of like of of the, of of the theatrical presentations of opera, uh, so at, at this point it's funny because I still I'm kind of theatrical and a lot of the even my own personal music uh, and and also visual stuff I do because I do end up having to do like music videos and stuff. There's a, an affinity for theatricality. And also, I mean, I'm communicating right now about this opera singer that I work with that comes and and sings on these songs for me every once in a while. And it's so funny because I had a, a very uh, notable uh, great aunt who was an opera singer that sang with Caruso. And nice. I'm like, wow, how does that happen? Here we are three generations later in a culture far removed. And here I am with the opera still. And I never had any training in it. I officially don't like opera. I, I, I put say the yes. quotation marks. <laughs> but then here I am, you know? It's like I officially am, like, not into classical music, but I'm, again, I have this, like, professional opera singer on, like, a third of my songs, and I like it, and, you know, and I relate to the drama it adds and what someone could do with their voice. Mm. So it's... Um, um, and it's funny, because I also... It's funny, I also officially don't really love... Highly. Also, this came from my came from my mom's um, influence of being like a, an accomplished uh, technical piano player. Like I, just, I still talk to people now 
Um, they occasionally I do talk to a musicologist that sort of is investigating my mom or is a specialist of, uh, in studying my mom. Her name was Marisa Regulis, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was an accomplished technical player. Like her technique was uh, was very high, was a very high level. But, but strangely, I personally am um, not that into music, into music highlighting high level of musicianship like i'm not really into i'm, I'm not really into like technical showing off for instance and mm-hmm. actually with a lot of singing some people have accused me of not liking good singing even <laughs> and sure. they might freaking have a point because i actually <laughs> do tend to like i do tend to like music of, I, I i tend to focus more on energy generally energy personality uh meaning and uh it, those usually i also often find that when people are better they become more cliche because that's what that sort of means. So better, uh, if you if you want to have the most personality possible, you would have someone with no training or as little as possible. Then that would be more like personality rather than, you know, because what does training do is it makes you good at other, other genres, at these genres. So it's, it's rare. It's possible that people can just sort of let go of all that baggage and just do something maybe even simple that doesn't even require any, any of their technique. But it's shown to be difficult. I do know that my mom, in her late years, seemed to rebel against um, sort of the a suffocating environment of like being a, a classical piano soloist with like symphony orchestras and stuff. And uh, she she actually did some which I just found the other day. I was I was actually realizing I should like listen to some tapes of my mom. <laughs> I finally went there. It took me fifth, uh, half a century to actually pull up these tapes. So I'm going to listen to stuff of my mom's. And I found uh, like an ex, like I, I'm calling it experimental, but this like electronic piece of music. And I know that she was studying a bit with Pierre Boulez, who was a um, experimental person. And this was in the sixties. So she was studying, studying under him um, while I was being raised. Like when I was under five and she stopped her touring. She was a, she was a, um, uh, uh, she was touring a lot. So she yes. stopped touring when she was raising me. And then she started, kind of rebelling a little bit against what I think she felt was sort of a suffocating, limiting um, situation of, you know, have, you know, that, that was the, that was the, the treadmill she was on was like classical music, Ravel and Brahms and Rachmaninoff. These were their specialties. Liszt was one of her specialties. So that makes sense. And she's like throwing all that out, hanging out with Pierre Boulez, just like I threw, threw it all out too and was hanging out with John Zorn. Yeah, you know, so I kind of, in some ways, did the same thing. Sort of, I did a roundabout their explanation of yeah. How and did, I came and about. did your and did your parents, you know, having that sort of background themselves, did they slightly sort of think, oh right, are you going to be somebody who could we could mold in a nice way or not nice way, but you know, like oh, let's sit him at the piano and start getting him into piano, or shall we get him into this? Or sh- did you get any kind of slight parent parental pressure to start? Yeah, performing? I, yeah. I, of course, but I um, I also see it through the the, the lens of a, of a child, which was maybe too much so. Which is a deaf. I actually perceive that my not being so interested and not taking that well to violin lessons and piano lessons was a humongous disappointment to my to particularly my mom, who was the musician, right? Because um, her aunt was the great opera singer, so I think that that was kind of a big disappointment. So I, as a child, carried that feeling that I had 
profoundly disappointed my mom. That's maybe a little unfair to my mom because I think children, I could have a daughter now and I know how it's very easy for them to perceive because they're worried about it, right? For them to, they're sensitive to that topic that maybe they've disappointed the parent, you know? And then, so I've had to clarify that with my daughter. It's like, no, I'm not disappointed, even though I, it seemed like I tried to influence you in this or that way because that's all I have to give you so that I give you what I can and then it doesn't work out and you flourish in some other way I'm happy I'm totally not disappointed so I so I can see how like that that same dynamic can happen where I I, my impression is that yes I I got a lot of pressure and that yes I did disappoint my mom and not becoming a a very accomplished musician either in jazz or in um or tango for that matter in classical music <laughs> and uh that maybe that's unfair but i never figured it out because my my mom died when when um when i was 12 years old so that that that's an unresolved thing oh my dad i don't think my, my dad i don't think cared my dad my dad was a doctor who was a strong supporter of the arts even so after even after my mom died when i was 12 my dad kept taking me to the philharmonic and to the and to the opera and uh, he kept trying to uh teach me about art and stuff and even the fact that he married my mom he was like like totally into like artists and supporting that was a big important um thing yeah thing for him you know and that it's almost like medicine was on the side <laughs> in a weird way with him but he was a doctor Yes, but God, I don't. That's... I don't think he. I don't think he cared about my. Um, he he tried to like some of the music I was liking, which at the time was great. Was just simply, like I said, it was simply like Jimi Hendrix, Frank Zappa. Yes, because I was sort of. I had a, I definitely had a prog affinity. I was kind of into like prog, so I would listen to stuff like Jeff Beck, and um, um, yeah, various. I don't know, King Crimson or whatever. So I, I listened. I definitely liked. It's funny because I'm sound like I'm, I'm contradicting myself because that stuff is all very playerly right like yes. you take you take stuff like frank zappa and the drummer terry bozio with like you know 17 cymbals and like 25 tom toms and a massive gong behind them and he like do like can do, do like like 25 notes per second you know that's very playerly and accomplished and i guess i like that but i but then that but that was before punk and then i kind of you know so that's the the the, the thing about me or the, even the problem with me is like i sometimes just end up flipping like I, I'm, I'm a sort of um I'm, I'm kind of a turncoat because i'll go a certain way and i'll go you know i'm feeling completely different now so all those values in this sort of vibe this sort of scene you know i'm kind of just not into that anymore and i kind of flip and go to a different genre just like yes. i mentioned before to you that I, I did african music for like a year because i was just kind of sick of dealing with indie rock but then then i go back to it so well that's interesting um, but i, I yeah. yeah. Well, it's, well, it's interesting because I had a, a two older brothers, but one especially I was very kind of looked up to and thought he was wonderful. And he was seven years old and he was into prog rock. So I slightly got into prog rock because of that. So he was into the Yes and Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman, Jethro Tull, all those yeah. bands, you know, with, with, you know, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath on the side. And so I, you know, at that age, which was probably 12 to 15, I was really obsessed with that kind of those albums and was just mesmerized but then over time I became slightly bored and then sort of started to change again but I do have a sort of a certain sneaky love for for various kind of yes albums especially in certain periods so uh yeah going for the one tomato and um relayer you know heart of the sunrise yeah I mean definitely way into into yes um for a while uh but really that all changed 
I guess in 1978, you know, that, so that was really, I guess with me, there's a series of like musical awakenings and reawakenings. So were you ever uh, in band? Were you ever in bands at that, you know, any of your younger days? Or did you, you know, were you more of a fan? Well, I was more of a fan. And uh, I, I played drums by myself. But I felt like uh, I kind of, because I, I, I was playing very proggy. <laughs> I was playing very proggy and Latin sounding drums. Like I play a lot of like, like weird time signatures and like polyrhythms. So did you stuff. like Bill Bruford then? Yeah, I did like Bill Bruford. And um, I, I felt like I didn't feel that that fit into any of the music that I liked hearing. So a lot of the music, I, I felt, and I still feel that way. Like what, my, what I do for pleasure with my hands, when I put my hands on an instrument or what I can make into an instrument, whether it's pots and pans or like cabinets or something like that, I, I do for myself and I like sounds and I like, so I'm always playing like every, I don't think a day goes by without me tapping on stuff and making rhythms and beats kind of with whatever's available. I annoy yes. people probably on the subway even, but um, so I, that's what I did with my drum kit. I just didn't see it fitting anywhere, you know, with stuff. And I was more interesting, more interested in sort of, I also didn't see myself, um, you know, participating in any kind of seeing a way to participate because all the people that I immediately was sort of allied with were much older. So it wasn't, I, I did not have the experience of being with some people the same age in like a college dorm, for instance, and like being perfect peers and like making a band with peers. Maybe my trajectory trajectory would have been different Um but that's not what, what what happened. There were people around me that were in in bands during high school, but it didn't really jump into my wanting to actually play in those bands. I don't even know exactly to explain why, but I was perfectly happy just playing drums on the side. And people knew I played drums, actually. Mm-hmm. was, But no one asked, and I wasn't trying. And, um, and, and then when I finally... But this is... We're talking still teenage, right? So when I finally was... I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, you know? I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure I wanted to be in music. I was in theater class actually during um, during high school, um, and so the first people I met, aside from like my kids in high school, that were musicians, were considerably older and already like on their way, right? So I it was like Bill Laswell. I met. He was like the first one, and then he he was sort of aligned with this guy Giorgio Gamelski, who was the who was the had been the manager of Gong and Soft Machine and stuff like that. Was some guy from. Um, Romania or something weird like that, but lived in London and was like a, a promoter of a lot of those yeah. places where like the Rolling Stones would play and stuff like that. So that, that was the person that was sort of like mentoring me. And he was like probably in his forties then. And then you had, um, um, uh, Laswell was an accomplished, very experienced musician, right? He'd been touring in a lot of these like funk bands in the South. I and mean, he wasn't that old. He was like 25 when I, I was like, what? I was 17. He was 25. Um, and then Zorn, also John Zorn, I met um, pretty quickly. So these are people that were like just way above. So I did not really think, oh, let me try to play with them. Like it just didn't, it, it didn't seem to go there. And immediately fell like very fast into, well, what could I do? And that's where it was that I started thinking in sort of tech in, certain, yes. in terms of like um, recording stuff. 
But then what, what happened with you? Because you're in New York at that stage in the sort of mid 70s. So you'd obviously started seeing all these bands like um, Suicide Television, Talking Heads, Blondie. And then there was the CBGB's world. And then there's Maxis, Kansas City. Did you, you know, and Z Records, did you start gravitating towards that scene? Were you kind of interested in that scene at all? Well, I was interested in, in the more, more extreme, sonically extreme stuff. You know, so as far as like no wave, you know, I was in, I really loved DNA. So that's, that, that's what, that's, that was with Arta Lindsay. Yeah. Um, some of the, some of the stuff that, I mean, some of these people became friends of mine, you know, like a band that was, that was playing in Max's Kansas city a lot was called the fast. And they were, um, a, a lot of people think that they, that actually the cars and Rick Ocasek, you know, kind of, kind of uh, co-opted their, their style and stuff because the fast would have like the flag with like racing, the racing stuff yeah. on the flag, right. That, and, and then, then the cars did the same thing. And then the, 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 the clothing with the, like the Bobby socks and stuff. So that was the fast. And I saw them at, um, um, at, at Max's can I, mean, I was at probably like 16 at, 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 uh, at Max's Kansas city. And then eventually I later, ended up working with them when they were doing the same people when they were doing less of a punk new wave thing. And when they were doing like high energy disco, right. Which was this, this sort of like, you know, this high tempo music that was very popular in in the gay clubs. And uh, so I did this band. So they, they, from the fast, they went to like man to man. That was the, is that Paul, is that Paul Shaw? Oh, I don't know that name. No. Who's in the fast. Who's the main character in the fast. Well, there was, um, uh, Paul Zone, who's Paul also a photographer. Zone. Yes, yeah. right. God, no, not Paul. Yeah, yeah so, so yeah, because he's got a book out now, hasn't he? Yeah, and... he's got a book of photography from that whole scene. So yeah, so that whole scene was there. You know, I don't know. There was a lot of scenes in New York City, and uh, I just never saw. A lot of this was way older than me. You know, so um, Blondie was there. I never saw Blondie live. Um, uh, I wish I'd seen television. I just didn't. Suicide yeah. was up more up my alley. I saw I saw Suicide once at the Mud Club. Um, you know, so I, but even still, I tend to, I tend to be very grassroots. I tend to, but that, that's the, the, the beauty of being in New York city is that there's always a lot that's happening grassroots. So once a band becomes quite successful and starts playing in like larger venues and stuff like that, I kind of lose interest, but I, I lose a little bit of interest and, and also a little less motivation to going to see them. So it's pretty much, unless you're playing back then, unless you're playing CBGBs, I probably wouldn't have gone out and, and seen you. And also CBGBs was busy. There was, you know, there was shows all the time. We used to go a couple of times a week yes. and very, and a, a broad array of different kinds of genres that people don't really talk about, but there was jazz that would happen at CBs. Um, we, we did a gong show at CBGBs, which we brought gong, which was inc- incredible because uh, that was also the beginning. It's funny because that was 1979. And I was a stage manager for the gong show at CBGB's, you know, with David Allen and stuff. And uh, uh, we did, the CBs didn't know what to do with it. We didn't even know who would come really to this. Yeah. This was like New York City was sort of like, mm-hmm. like a, a bit of a wasteland then, you know? So we didn't know who would come. So we had an audition night. We had like a Monday. I had school the next day. So we had Monday night and it was mobbed. And the thing that was funny is I just did not know that there was so many 
hippies still in the world. <laughs> like I was like, oh mm. my God. Like I just didn't know that existed. Like I just literally, even at that time, even in 1979, I thought that was like, I see images from 1969 and thought like, wow, where'd that all go? Well, the reality is, is it still was still there. On. It was still there. And did and yeah. did bands like Hawkwind appear in your sort of orbit, you know, because they were obviously one because in the UK, you know, bands like Gong Hawkwind here and there, here and now. I mean, they were real hippie, festy bands. You know, people get very stoned and just watch the lights show, and it's just very psychedelic music. I just wondered if if that that kind of trans exported over to New York and. Well, they might have. I also was just really only into the into Gong, you know. But that was my exposure. I mean, that was a big. I think it really had a big influence of me of going on tour with Gong and seeing them play like every night. Yes. But that didn't necessarily mean that I was going to Hawkwind shows. That that didn't really happen. Um, so and also Gong started um, morphing right away. Gong became New York Gong, um, and David Allen put on a, a leather jacket. So he he sort of downplayed the the, the pixie look, right? You see with that pixie pixie elf. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have a pixie elf kind of thing with like like moons like moons sort of like sewn onto his like jumper or something. And uh, so that was kind of traded in for like leather. And um, I don't know. I, I, I think with that, with that pixie look, it's a kind of a Glastonbury thing. You know, it's a, the Glastonbury festival is also about the mythology of King Arthur and ley lines and cosmic energy and all those kind of otherworldly things that you get in the UK. So I think he probably occasionally would be on the, there was the kind of, in, on, on the festival front, there's kind of places like the Greenfield where it's all very back to the 60s Woodstock, you know, getting stoned, having mushrooms, you know, trying to find your, you know, opening your third eye and having cosmic relationships with people. It's very, you know, it's very cosmic, you know. So I think he probably <laughs> does that. But I saw, I noticed that Richie Blackmore also has a little pixie hat on sometimes and does his little sort of folky bits. So um, it does, you know, English guitarists do like to go into that world as well. Depends. Yeah, and he's, he has a, he has a, I think he's got a Gaelic spelling to his name, right? David, David Allen. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's nothing like going to Stonehenge or Avery Stone Circle and uh, sort of having a cosmic one, one moment. So this, yeah. So did you, when, you know, at that stage, had you sort of left school in the sort of the late seventies at all, or were you still left, left school? Or uh, well, that's, yeah, that's a, well, that's good. I, I never went to college. And, and I think that it was um, uh, fortunate, really, because I jumped right into the, the pot, the pan, right into the hot pan immediately after high school. And uh, part of it was, unfortunately, that my dad had died. Just saying, just being truthful, that there was no pressure. There was no family pressure for me to go to to college because uh, my, my dad died in 1978. So he died just as I was starting my senior year, my last year in high school. And uh, I had no extended family in um, New York City. You know, we were South American, so there was a few people in in Miami, <laughs> and then everyone else was in Chile or Argentina. So there was no pressure from them. So I just kind of do what did whatever I wanted, and I I, I thought the music scene. I, it's funny. I, I I at the same time thought that what was happening around me in terms of music with like the band Material and Bill Laswell and all this sort of. Uh, what we used to call the downtown bands, like Glenn Branca's uh, theoretical girls and all that. I had the impression at the time that it was the most important thing happening on the planet. That's what I would have told you, right? Mm. But at the same time, I didn't think it would ever go anywhere. So at the same time, I was shocked when like, I don't know, when like 
I remember the day when people told me that the Pixies were were playing stadiums in Europe. And I was like, huh, what? How is that possible? Like, I just did not get it. I didn't see how that could possibly, first of all, I was not interested in mainstream. So the whole idea that it was kind of going mainstream was just a complete shock to me. So even though I thought it was absolutely essential music, a lot of this stuff, like the, the whole scene, I thought it's like, wow, this is, has, and also that's also part of being in a sort of in a cultural center like New York, where you can get that energy where uh, people come internationally and you get a sense of your place on the globe. And my sense of it, because I was dealing with a lot of, people that were coming to New York from other countries, like the person I met, George Gamelski, who was the, the the gong manager, who's basically lived in London for a long time. So, and Brian Eno, Brian Eno um, yes. lived in, he lived in New York from like 19, I believe 76 or 77 till like 1981 or 1982. Of course, so New York was a kind of an epicenter. So I was really in the hotspot, I felt, or a hotspot to be fair. And uh, the, the benefit of being a hotspot is you, can sort of just do your own thing and believe you're doing the, the best thing you can because you're you're not thinking oh it might be maybe be better somewhere else. So I really had no idea that I didn't think it would be anywhere better than New York City at the time to be. That's that was my feeling. So I, of course I thought what we were doing, what was going on around me was the most important stuff on the planet. But like I said, yet again, I I did not think it would ever succeed. Even hip hop. I didn't think would actually go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Because New York has that, you know, apart from being completely bankrupt and there was like that whole sort of history that it's, um, it was going to crumble. There was the birth of kind of, yeah, punk. There was the birth of hip hop. There's the birth of disco. So obviously within a very short period of time, one city, it must have had that feeling of, of sort of, wow, this, is, this has been a very exciting year. We've had this kind of happening and that happening. And, and obviously you had the Andy Warhol scene as well, which was ah, happening. Yeah. So they, they must have had elements of excitement as well as incredible danger and a huge amount of drug taking, as well as kind of other sort of scenes. Because obviously there's a bit of a, I mean, I, I know sort of, because I've done an interview with JJ French from Twisted Sister. I mean, you know, they started in the early 70s and he played or they played every night for sort of 10 years to try and get a record deal. So there was obviously a very vibrant music scene. And then there was a sort of the acoustic music scene that eventually people like Suzanne Vega sort of came, you know, came up from as well, which, you know, obviously was huge in the mid 80s. So New York did have that sort of element. And there was all those angry punks and there was all those angry poets like Lydia Lunch as well and, and stuff. So, yeah, you know, from the UK, you could see like, wow, this is amazing. New York must just be every morning. You must be waking up going, what's what's new today? You know? Yeah, well, yeah, yes. But with all uh, nuance added there. On the other hand, it was fairly slow moving, at least for me here in Gowanus. Um, the thing that I think it's there were certain things that mainly would happen after dark um, that really contributed to um, this sense of um, of there's so much going on to discover and other people was that there was a, a great model I felt with these clubs with three floors where you would have like at the same time like three <coughs> or four like Danceteria for instance would have actually had four floors. They had the cabaret room at the top where like Madonna did her first performance. And it's funny looking at, looking at some of those flyers. I'm like, oh my God, all this stuff was happening. So you'd have bands like Swans and like Sonic Youth or something like that, or like post-punk stuff, um, or even like barely known post-punk and no wave stuff with like much bigger stuff. And then you'd have like a, a graffiti artist doing like a, a gallery opening on like the third floor. And then you'd have like a disco, like a like total dance floor kind of stuff. 
um, happening, like Jelly Bean Benitez, the DJ or something like yeah. that, being being like on the first floor. And that like, Z Records was sort of like covering up over that whole scene. Uh, Michael Zilka, I guess that's the person's name. And um, um, so all the, so I really was like, wow, this three floor model is freaking great. And then there was another club down in Tribeca uh, called Tier 3, T-R-3, yeah. which also had three floors, right? So the whole thing, I was like, wow, you know, three floors. That really does it. Because then it really kind of forces you to kind of mingle with all the other stuff and peek and check. So that's how, like, you know, someone like Madonna could even, like, talk about swans as she had. had. Uh, it's because, well, she was there and she was probably there not to see swans. She was there dancing, but then was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. You know, and uh, so it, it really, it really thrust us together in a lot of ways. It doesn't happen right now. Um, yeah. And also, and also pre-internet kind of matters, you know, the fact that you could kind of, people didn't have their guard up as much anymore. I, I think also because uh, even popular people, the, the amount of people was actually smaller. We, we sometimes talk about the, the Lower East Side or the Manhattan 500, Right, like some people have postulated that the actual amount of people actually involved was like five hundred, <laughs> so it's so it's fairly small. So that's why you can imagine why because I, I, my well, it's not a claim to fame, but my <laughs> I claim to a memory uh, of Andy Warhol as being online to the bathroom. I think when I when I was online to the bathroom the second time, I was like, wow, this is a thing. I'm like fucking on the line to the men's room with Andy Warhol <laughs> twice. And, and and behind, by the way. So I, I remember like like looking at his wig from behind. Um, <laughs> but that's that's friggin' approachable, right? I mean, that's like I think it's a little harder to think of. I mean, now we think of him as a massive celebrity, kind of. But at this time, he was kind of accessible. All these people were he, the fact that we even invited you know to come into this building. Yes, that you're looking at behind me is like, wow, that doesn't happen anymore. You can't even get an email into Eno now. <laughs> no this is true so look in in the uk you know obviously in a simplistic way you know there was the punk period there was post-punk and then sort of that that kind of for us i suppose one of the major moments is you know in 70 79 margaret thatcher gets into you know power so there's like this whole change there's a huge amount of unemployment in the uk and then there's all these kind of difficult m political moments which are horrendous so you know we we've got a you know a lot of young teenagers who are just kind of very disenfranchised and unemployed. So there's, you know, I mean, a lot of people begin bands at that stage. But for you, this is kind of like the moment you start that building, your studio. So what happens in 80, 81 for you? Well, 80, I was in this space. And, uh, well, actually, I did want to mention that as much as fast paced as this really all was in retrospect, the, the pace of life partly because I was young, right? So less of an agenda. Um, and also partly because the city was sort of um, crumbling and, and if anything was getting more and more affordable because people were fleeing. I mean, I don't think the term white flight had even taken a hold yet. Uh, I mean, it was obviously white flight had already been happening, but people started, people started really talking about it um, like in the eighties when it was beyond just that the tax base sort of decreased to like, yeah. wow, it's really emptying out. And there's, there was the arson crisis as well, where a lot of these empty place, even near near where I am now, even near the studio, there was uh, a whole block that was arsoned, burnt to the ground. Um, uh, so everything sort of, it's funny because my sense back then was, um, I, one of the reasons I felt I didn't need a college education was because I thought that uh, society was going to collapse. 
So I, th- I thought, well, like, what's the rush? Like, I didn't have to worry about, like, making big career. Like, now it's like, what's your career plan? Because it's like everything's so overheated. And at the time, it was like, well, we're kind of just, like, hanging out in burnt out buildings in freaking in the urban area. So everything was kind of slow. So in that slow pace, I got this space here to have the recording studio. And I got it in the fall of 1979. Um, I'm sorry, in the late summer of 1979. And then I immediately after that, so slightly on pause for a second, I went to Roadie Gong, believe it or not, in France. So I did a French gong tour for like a month and a half. And then came back and um, just started looking at the space. The, the, the idea was rehearsing. And uh, I, I hadn't thought of recording anything yet at that point, but that was just enough. It was just, first I was kind of into hanging out. So I was like, sure, let's do this. It's a place to live and people can uh, rehearse and we can pay the rent by having a couple other bands yeah. in here like contribute. So that kind of happened. There was a band called the Futants that uh, that were part of the whole like um, mud club scene and stuff. So I learned a lot from them. Um, that was also uh, my introduction to people from West Berlin. Because our whole scene here in New York City, there was a lot of people from West Berlin, a lot of the it was a bit of a sister scene in West Berlin of like no wave and stuff. Oh. Um, so, so I was like, Oh, so this guy in the, in the Futons, Martin Fisher from, he's a German from, uh, from West Berlin. And then there was this guy, uh, Klaus Nomi, who was this, uh, a fabulous singer of very extravagant appearance. Yes. that ended up singing with David Bowie. Do you know who I'm talking about? Klaus yes. Nomi? Yes. Cause I've done a few yeah, so, interviews with, um, is it Christian Hoffman from the months? And he's talked about um, yeah. Klaus and also Joey Arias as well. I've done an interview. Right. So obviously he was, he was kind of there with David Bowie with the suit, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He had that, that big exaggerated male um, suit with the exaggerated male receding hairline. Right. Yeah. So, so that, so he was, so he was, I don't know if he was West Berlin actually, but he was West German. So there was a lot of that influence in New York. So that, that immediately put me on an adult track. I really grew up fast. Right. Yeah. So I was like, suddenly I was suddenly in like, adult land and I was still a teenager so I got this space letting these things happen some of that scene was already tricking into the studio which which what what would become the studio via just people rehearsing so there's a guy like Robert Quine who uh who played was a fantastic guitar player who's dead now who uh played with Richard Hell and the Voidoids he played on Blank Generation right um so he so he was in a band rehearsing in my space uh called Deadline that um you know, so I got introduced to him. So I was actually meeting people just from having a little space where people could rehearse. And then somewhere in 1980, it occurred to me to get some recording equipment. And it was just enough to spark all of our appetites, but not enough to, to, to really get any kind of ball rolling. And that's where when Bill Laswell got proactive and kicked it up the, the field a little bit by uh, contacting Brian Eno. And yes. getting Brian, Brian to come to the space, visit the space here in Gowanus, Brooklyn, and uh, give us some money to come here and record some of his ambient record. Right. Uh, so, so, that, did that, you, and, so did you rent, the, were you renting it or did you manage to sort of get some sort of purchase on it? No, nah, nah, I'm still renting. You know, I'm right. still renting, so I'm vulnerable, but yeah, so I'm just renting. Yeah, sure. I just remember talking to the guy who wrote that book about the mud club and I think he bought some place. Oh, this is the, this is the book, Richard Bock, who bought some place in, you know, New York and it was like very cheap at the time. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I'm not, wasn't that smart. 
<laughs> so, were, so were you aware of you know how to set up a studio? By the way, because I mean, a rehearsal space is one thing, but then a studio must be quite an interesting technical challenge. Uh, no, I really didn't know. You know, so I kind of, I mean, at that point, I'd done sound at um, at CBGBs a bunch. Yeah. Right. So that's what gave me. That's what gave me the. So while this is happening, while I'm setting up something to do a little rehearsing. Uh, for like, um, you know, a little over a year. At the same time, I was kind of doing sound here and there for bands I liked in um, in CBGBs and um, just here and there. So I got a little bit of training from that and I got a board. Um, so when I decided to get some recording equipment, I got a board that was exactly the same one as the one in CBGBs, which is just a live sound board. So I could just sort of, sorry, because I, I trusted it, I guess. And, uh, you know, I got some people that were like tech people that kind of helped me a little bit, like wiring stuff. Uh, and so I learned from them. And then Brian Eno came. Also, the thing with Brian Eno was very lo-fi, right? It was not, I wasn't recording U2 or Coldplay or any of the other like big pop stuff that he would do, right? This was, it wasn't Bowie or or uh, or uh, Roxy Music or anything. It was... Um, um, ambient right so some of it was even like uh like uh shuffling stones in like a cardboard box yeah um so it was like waving waving tubes in the air um so there, i mean you actually have to be a bit proficient right to record that <laughs> capture that but it's, yeah but so it's not like you, you know it does take some skill actually but you know um it's not a it's not a big handful so Eno actually carried a lot of the, the technical stuff and would just kind of show me how to do it. So in some ways I was assisting Eno um, and it's generous to be credited as having engineered when I was sort of just helping in a way because he knew what to do, right? He was like, oh, you put a couple of money, you do this, do it this way. He showed me how to do a tape loop, this kind right. of stuff. Um, so I, I learned the hard way and then I was kind of arrogant, unfortunately. Like I just somehow thought that the best, way was to just really believe in your skills and just just do it so i would do it and just and just uh ignore the fact that actually people might depend on my knowing what i'm doing and then ultimately then possibly some people occasionally being annoyed that i wasn't being transparent about like not knowing what i was doing so you know my my hubris be damned but that that was a little bit part of it it was also like um a way to deal with my insecurity about it because I knew I didn't know anything. Practically. Right. Um, I did in 1981 realize I should probably take some courses. So I did take a course in what was called audio engineering, which really ended up being a course in like ele electronics and stuff or ele electricity, even stuff I didn't really need to do, need to know. It was more, almost more like training you to repair stuff than actually run a recording session. Um, but I did try, I did tried to get a few, take a few courses. So I knew I needed to know a little bit more than I did. Yes. But so, it, so it was a slow start. And um, I, luckily I was mentored by people like people, Fred Frith, the, the uh, British experimental guitar player who also lived in New York. Uh, he had been doing a lot of do-it-yourself recordings over the years. So he knew what he was doing. He taught me, he gave, he gave me some shit sometimes too. <laughs> that was, he's like, what the, you know, you want to call yourself a recording studio. You, the sooner you figure this and this out, the, the sooner it'll be true, you know? 
Yeah, but you worked with people like Material for quite a while, John Zorn, and you know Eno Fab Fry, you know Fab Five Freddy, Fab Five Freddy, which was kind of a classic. I mean, this is these are all names that you know us in the UK would have just gone, wow, that's so cool. Because because the thing is, I mean, I have to sort of say this, but we you know we had this DJ called John Peel in this country who played all this very exciting yeah. music, and you know anything that you know as a fan you always wanted to discover a new band, and you know anything from New York you'd instantly say that must be brilliant rather even if it wasn't so you know there is a kudos isn't there sort of in you know from far off places that seem much more exotic and much more cutting edge so you do have that kind of yeah one up from a place that like Norwich I suppose you know which it, you know, we didn't really have such a music scene in this country or in this city anyway so yes it must have been yeah I mean the early 80s did seem like a very exciting time from you know music coming out from your city yeah I mean that's uh that's something I uh well also New York City is uh, New York along with other cities in the United States like Chicago I think Los Angeles for instance um Atlanta Georgia these are places that I call like capital cities they're capitals in their region so that means because when I've met people in in the Midwest for instance they their coming of age thing when they get out of usually when they get out of high school or college or something like that as they go to Chicago, right? That's so that's their capital city. That's where they go. So I think it's there's a lot to be said for that for being living in a capital city. That's also part of something I've been trying to remind people of um of the of the value as as the music scene gets increasingly splintered as it seems impossible for us to occupy a sort of capital city focal point where you can kind of run into people where I can be, as I said before, in the bath, it, it, on the line to the men's room with Andy Warhol and stuff like that. Um, what we're, we're losing a, 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 the ability to be in a centralized place yes. um, because of social changes. I mean, I guess even now it might even be worse with like long distance work and stuff where uh, also be, economics where we're being forced a lot of, the thing I'm trying to resist is the, the, all, the thing that's almost become cliche, which is the recording studio that moves to upstate New York in the in the in the farm to the farmlands, so I could have a farmhouse as a recording studio. Which you know, I don't know, maybe there's something to be said for that, but that's increasingly splintered. Where I'm going to be like 30 miles from like the people that I need to be around, and like um, uh, there is no focal point where like people from outside would go of value, right? Like. You know, so it's still like if people come, someone like Gong, as as we were talking about from like the UK would come, where are they going to go? They're going to go to New York. They're going to, they're not going to go that many places. So they're going to go and maybe, maybe lay down their anchor for a little bit of time in one place. We are sort of physically limited. And it's, so what you just mentioned of of New York taking up a lot of air, basically, right? So it it being a focal point of attention globally. Um, I, I actually like pointing out to people that 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 a lot of what I did was facilitated by that. I mean, occasionally when people go, "Oh, you you accomplished so much because you were there, you were a midwife to the birth of all this kind of stuff," you know, something like that, right? And mm-hmm. I also have to point out, but yeah, it's also you got to be a midwife at the right place, right? Yes. So a lot of it, a lot of it helped to be in New York City, and that was crucial. And also, I'm, I'm afraid that that's kind of what's being lost when even, when we're talking New York City, we're actually then. We meant a few foci, right? A few focal points, like maybe the South Bronx, and then maybe there was Harlem with like the 
the the ballroom scene, for instance, which was like in Harlem, it was like house dis proto house disco, and then you had the East Village and the West. It's just a little bit sliver, and now we're like poof, we're like exploded thirty miles apart and different because New York City is New York City is huge. It can take hours to get from one side to the other on public transportation. Um, now we're all splintered, and that really weakens us. That really yeah. weakens music and weakens a lot of the magic. The magic, I say magic, is because they still haven't, people still haven't figured out exactly how these things happen, how they come together, how the zeitgeist comes together, how things emerge and start unpopular, as I mentioned before, but then somehow they have an influence yes. for a hot minute, you know? So well, so being in, a, being in a central place, and like I said, New York City, it, it's... But the place is important, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. And how important was the album by Material, the one titled One Down, which does feature, it does have Whitney Houston on, doesn't it? So on the track called Memories, is this one that you were involved with, you know, because you were, you, you're credited on, on the album? Yeah, I was not as involved with that song as the others. I, I mean, I gotta say I wasn't that interested in the song because it was a ballad. You know, uh, it was sort of done as a <clears throat> a necessary thing to do because it was, they were on a major label. So material yes. was on a major label. And um, um, but I mean, I, as, as with everything, I, I put my heart into it. I mean, I mean, Bill Laswell and I were a, a little different in, in certain in certain ways. Like what the thing that I still was most excited about was mm. grassroots. So I was most interested in I mean, still my dream. If anything, if there's a dream, the dream is to find a group of musicians or or they find me for that matter, a band that's sort of unknown, that's slight, slightly doing well, very locally, just slightly. But then that blossoms and explodes into something that's always to me seem like the holy grail. That's what you mm-hmm. really want. Bill Laswell was always about like digging up old legends. That's his holy grail. That's what he loved. So for him to have Archie Shep, which is the great uh, saxophone player who he got to come, he got to play on Memories. That to him was highly significant to, to me. He's like, yeah, I know he's a legend, but you know, it didn't really, it wasn't that crucial to me, you know, because I preferred grassroots. But yeah, but again, Archie Shep is someone, I think uh, Bill and a friend of his saw Archie Archie Shep on the street and just were like, just dared to go up to him and say, hey, will you come to a recording session? And so they got him. And I think that they were interested in uh, in Whitney Houston because of her mom, right? Her mom was a... a, a a very significant um, soul singer whose yes. name is escaping me right now. Sissy? Sissy. Yes. Sissy, yeah. And the, the auntie, isn't she? Yes, I know. So, yes. it, was, so it was a cool... So that was the connection with that was the connection with the label. And then I did not, I got to say, and I'm sorry, I did not appreciate the fantastic connection with uh, um, Hugh Hopper, I guess, was the writer of the song. And uh, the, the song was initially covered by Soft Machine. Here we go again with British psychedelia, you know, and so it it took years for me to kind of appreciate how tickling that was that, wow, our first, the first foray of Whitney Houston into the big public realm was to sing on a song that had, that had been covered by like, uh, you know, Robert Wyatt and, and like soft machine. It was just like kind of freaking unbelievable. Um, But it was a significant song in that for instance, she could not win uh, best new artist like when her for because this was before she had her own like solo records yes. so when she finally had her own, own solo record she could not be up for the best new artist grammy because she was not a best she was not a new artist because she'd already been on memories 
So, so memories <laughs> did kind of thrust her into the world. That was her little baby step out there. So yeah, yeah that connection with soft machines kind of incredible. The really. Canterbury scene. That was what we, we loved so much. So then what was it like working with people like African Barbata, Bambata? Uh, well, you know, nice guy. I mean, I, I loved his, I loved his Zulu nation. His Zulu nation was inspiring to me. I mean, it reminded me, and I thought there was sort of a um, connection with its mechanics of like uh, the, the hardcore scene. So at the time, I was quite aware of that. I was like, oh, wow, Zulu Nation with all these like teenagers is yeah. a lot like, it's a lot like the hardcore scene, right? Um, it's sort of like a safe space. They promote like, they promote at least uh, no drug taking, um, right? So you had like, you know, you had a uh, um, straight edge punk hardcore. And then, and then uh, for a different, completely different reason, um, uh, Zulu Nation, which as you know, that that was the kit, that was Africa Bambada's like collective. Yes. Right. Little, so, little so, yeah, exactly. And so that, that collective also, they, they advocated for no, no drug taking, but I think that came from a, like a Muslim perspective. That was, a, that was kind of a Malcolm X kind of thing. Yes. Um, but so they at least promoted that. And um, uh, also, I've always been fascinated by collectives. Even to this day, I'm more fascinated by bands than I am individual artists. Yeah. Um, so I, so I was, I loved the Zulu Nation because it was like, wow, it's a, a real collective of people with different skills, all worked on a sort of equal playing field and in completely different disciplines. So you had, uh, uh, very notably in um, Zulu Nation, you had break dancers, and then you had like DJs and you had like MCs. And you, so it's a lot of people doing and gra graffiti sort of drifted into Zulu Nation, although really graffiti pre preexisted, predated hip hop even and, and Zulu Nation, but it sort of wound its way into, I think a lot of the people that were into a lot of the break dancers and stuff like brought in the, the graffiti into, into that club, into that, that zone. Yes. So I had the, the Zulu Nation came to the studio. Uh, I don't know if it was the entire Zulu Nation, but it seemed like it came close. They were here one day. I was a little shocked. I didn't even know they were here. And I was, oh, wow, they're here because I have two floors. I was like, yeah. oh, the, whole, the whole freaking nation is upstairs. And uh, yeah, there was like 15, almost 20 of them upstairs. And bam, as we called them, Africa Bambada had brought them into the space. And uh, I mean, he considering who he was and how he was, he was very communicative. He was one of those kinds of people that you would think would not be very approachable, you know, because he was very much kind of a, a leader, sort of very alpha. You would think he would be kind of distant, but, but, but he was not. He was also, he would also dress like a, you know, like an African king or something, right? So he, he so he, he, he had that whole look before anyone else did. Actually, it's not true because there was a, 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 a crazy scene where Laz, well, Laswell and Bambada um, ran into one of the local gangs here and they were like, disrespecting Bambada and they were saying they were calling him Mr. T right so you remember Mr. Oh, T yes, who was, the, God, who yes. was like a, a, a who was a television character um, yeah. yeah yeah so they so Bambada had a, was all like that with the gold chains kind of thing and everything um but yeah actually it was quite approachable and um he brought stuff to the studio so I ended up being also it's funny because um, amongst his collaborators there was an interesting connection because I, I, I realized there was a real 
sort of a clear line. I'm not saying that the line wasn't crossed a lot, but I'm saying there was a line between like club music and, and hip hop. Yes. Um, so I ended up working with a lot of like club people that worked with Bambada. And it's very different because also a lot of the club people were into singing. I mean, there was voices, right? And then the hip hop did not have that. Hip hop had more of like, uh, it was before hip hop sort of uh, merged with soul, like much later, right? The, the soul was really like, MCs, those people rapping, yes. and uh, not a whole lot of singing happening. So there was a bit of disconnect between like straight, straight up, like maybe more like dance music or club music and like hip hop. But some of the people were the same. So some of like, Af- I would do like dance music with some people that also did like beat programming with Bambada. Um, but it was funny. There still was a line. Like I said, they, the line was crossed, but there was a line. There was definitely, you could say that's one thing and that's the other thing. Yeah, it's interesting. And obviously, you know, being the, the John Peel indie kid that I was in the 80s, I mean, Sonic Youth plays a huge part in one's life. What was it? Because you record their two first albums, don't you? Bad Moon Rising and Evil on SST Records, which obviously we all love. Oh, they were on Homestead as well, weren't they? I mean, what was those sessions like when you sort of saw the band in their very early days? Well, um, yeah, the first record was on Homestead. Uh, I'm not. These were these were. I think their first two LPs. That I think is accurate. But right. they did release like an EP before that. I think one's called Flower right. or something, and, and that was on Glenn Branca's label, Neutral. Um, so I did the one on Homestead, and then SST. The second one was what everyone was thinking was like, wow, a big step up. We're just moving to SST, yes. which was based in which was based in California, which is a whole other scene. Um, and uh, I think for California, for people in SST, and SST was kind of intense to really get a, a hot New York band. Um, yeah. it, it, it was also it was also up Sonic Youth's alley, because particularly Thurston. Even if you look at the name Sonic Youth, right? Uh, Thurston had an affinity for the hardcore scene. Uh, all of these people did, right? Everyone had an affinity for like hip hop of the South Bronx and like hardcore from outer borough brooklyn and queens and long island like everyone had an affinity for those two things those are two genres that were it's almost like outsider they didn't care about anything else except what they were doing right everyone else was sort of informed about and had like an art history degree or something like that and then like and then hardcore kids just did what they did you know and same thing with the the, with hip-hop so um i think that going on to sst which had black which was the home of black flag and was one run from run by some of the people from Black Flag, which is sort of hardcore in a sense. Um, I think that was way up, you know, uh, Thurston's, Al- Thurston's Alley. Like I said, the, the, the word, the, the name Sonic Youth seemed a little hardcore, right? Because you had bands like, you know, Youth of Today and you had Reagan Youth, these like hardcore yes. bands. So Sonic Youth kind of fit with that a little bit. So then SST was a, a, a big deal. The fun thing for me was, um, like I said, there was a lot going on in New York. There's also a lot of stuff that I'm into that I wasn't necessarily eating up all the time, right? So, for instance, at that time, so when they came to me, I guess it was 1983 or 84, mm-hmm. I was um, had really only exclusively done uh, hip hop and experimental music. So I'd only really done like scronky John Zorn kind of stuff with like you know a lot of instruments being knocked around on a table, this kind of stuff, right? Um, and like like objects being put into like instruments, bass and guitar uh, between the strings and, you know, rattled around and, you know, noise, noisy avant-garde music. Right. So I was doing that and I was doing hip hop, 
which strangely enough seemed experimental to me at the time, because to get a lot of those weird sounds involved a certain amount of experimenting and, and experimental skills just to get, that's why they came to me, because I could squeeze out of limited technology weird sounds, right? Like I tape, could do tape loops and stuff like yeah. that, because no one, no one could afford samplers, you know? Um, so uh, when, when Sonic Youth came to me, I thought it was, um, I thought it was fairly straight. I mean, I, it was funny because it was the, it was kind of the first rock band I did. And it's interesting because I actually like that, that Lee Ronaldo has said that, that I was, that they were the first of those kinds of bands. I'm glad that that's, I think that that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's not sort of something I'm proud of, but I think it's interesting and a little funny that the first rock band I recorded was Sonic Youth. I mean, I've gotten really lucky, right? The first, my first recording session was with Brian Eno. The first rock band I recorded was Sonic Youth. That's I not mean, bad, that's, is it? That, yeah, it's, that's yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny is, and, and good. And what was it like? I mean, though I would love to ask you about Death Valley 69, mainly because I went and bought a copy of it on Blast First Records. Was that an easy session to do? Yeah, all of that was easy. Oh, yeah, all of that was easy. Um, um, it was fast. It's funny, we have very different memories. I remember the whole thing. It's got to have been like two weeks just to record the Sonic Youth thing. Intense sessions. That, that was before I realized that it's probably best not to just kill yourself in the studio. Yeah, but also that's also that's also how we did things. Like the whole culture was like killing yourself in the studio, kill yourself doing anything. That was the whole culture. So it was mm. not very like there wasn't a whole lot of self care going along. Like oh I don't, I don't know, sorry, I got like um, uh, hold on a second. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there there wasn't a whole lot of um, um, there wasn't a whole lot of um, oh I need to take some personal time. Yeah, uh, people just just put blood, sweat, and tears in air. So everything was like killing yourself so yeah so i think I, I, that hadn't occurred to me yet to like slow things down during a process so i, I believe it was a hot two 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 weeks of yeah. uh, bad moon rising some people have different memories that's kind of how i remember it um there was no time to have any um any other feelings except that this was cool i mean there was no there was no real blueprint of how things were supposed to even sound so that's why um uh so that's why um there was no, not even a whole lot of questions, right? So there hadn't been a lot of proper multi-track recording of like indie or like noise music. So um, all I could do was um, that. So there was no questioning, right? So there was no, no one had any opinion, really. There was no opinions. And, and, and there was no, no one had opinions. No one had experience with home recording, so really, every, nothing was controversial, you know, whereas now it's a little different. There's a bit of a conversation with people. Yes. Um, and uh, so I w- it was very easy and, and sort of fast. I think with, with Evil, that was a little more difficult because they started uh, asking more questions and, and started one at, a little more self-aware about what they should do. Yeah. Um, hey, hey, David... Could we pause for one second? Yes, of course. Is that a problem? No, that's fine. I can hit pause. That's cool. But one one twelve inch that I know John Peel played, which I then went and had to buy, was Kokoni Youth into the groove e on Blast First. Was that one that was also recorded in in your studio where I am looking at the moment? Uh yeah, it was, and. Uh... Yeah, I mean, that's also sort of an example of how um, certain electronica kind of things or even hip-hop at, at the time, because I was still fairly early, 
yeah. um, was a sort of ex- was kind of an ex- experimental zone um, because the the tech the tech involved in in into the groovy right yeah. is completely sort of inept and is kind of uh, pretty DIY. I mean, we were having a lot of trouble getting things to sync up. We were trying to like record and place and reprogram drums on top of, um, on top of a track of Madonna's tracks. We were actually using the Madonna's track as the bed. So the the whole thing was, was, uh, was difficult then, but that's also because a lot of the technology was really, the affordable technology was just not that good and was kind of hard to operate. And a lot of the better, and a lot of the real technology that you would hear on, on, uh, on better funded productions was just way unaffordable. Like, you know, like samplers were still like samplers still were like tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So you couldn't, you couldn't really have a sampler. So had the band come in with the idea and, or, or was it, was it being worked out within, you know, the time of the production and recording process? Well, they had the, they had the rough idea for sure. Yes. Um, and then, and then I guess we would try different things. The actual arrangement that you hear in that final mix was sort of figured out because uh, we had to see what worked, right? So it was really um, dependent on um, what worked or didn't work. So something would, something would make it into a section or would be faded into a section because it worked and something would be faded out because it wasn't working rather than a predetermined idea of what the arrangement or structure should be or what it should be. Yes. So it's kind of, you know, also there's another song that came out, I think around that time was on this, um, it was on this single, this like 12 inch single that, that Sonic Youth did called Master Dick, which was so, sort of similar and, and sort of this sort of like, chaotic DIY um, um, electronica kind of version, which is very, um, you know, I guess sort of charming in the, in the end result now, because it's so like try, trying to, trying to make something that's good with things, something that's like very rickety. Yes. I know. This is so it's very got a lot. Of, it's got a, it's got a lot of like, hard, would be hard to replicate personality for sure. <laughs> it's good. And the other, uh, and one other album, which I wasn't sure where it was recorded, but was quite, you know, I don't know, that controversial, but the Swans, when they signed to MCA, was MC something records. Um, yes, they, they then sort of released the album, which was Burning World, which I know the band didn't seem to like. Was that also recorded at your studio or were you just w- working on it in a different studio? Well, I, I actually didn't work on the the basic tracking of it. That was my introduction to Swans. Right. So I didn't work. I didn't work on the foundational elements. Uh, that was recorded somewhere else. That was their first record on a major label. Yes, With and big, uh, uh, everything big. You know, this is the pressure was to 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 get you know big sales, wasn't it? But then the band weren't that keen on it. Uh, well, what happened? So they got what was who was essentially a hot producer at the time was Bill Laswell, and at that point, Laswell and I had had split up in terms of uh, using the studio. He he had sort of started his own studio, and uh, that's actually why the studio stopped being called OAO, which was you know um, Operation All All Out. That's what yes. it was called all those early years, and it became BC as in Before Christ. Then that that was like in 1984. Um, so, but I continued working with Laswell now and then, and what would happen with Laswell was that he would, and I guess kudos to him because he just thought it was a vibe, almost like an alchemy where he just liked doing something 
at the recording studio. So he liked doing stuff in big studios, like big highfalutin studios in Manhattan, and then come to this place here in Brooklyn and do some aspects of it, like to give it kind of um, a certain touch or to just, just for vibe, really yeah. just for vibe or, or some mystery kind of alchemy or something. So he had that thing and kudos to him, kudos to him because it also brought interesting projects here. So, you know, a lot of stuff I, a lot of stuff I was only uh, ten, ten, tangentially involved in, like an Iggy Pop record, um, a Ramones record, where I just did odds and bobs, you know. Yeah. But with with that that Swans record, it was a little more than odds and bobs, but uh, somehow it was a bit more of an immersion than those other records where I like just recorded a few things. The Swans thing was a bit more involved. I got to record a lot of different elements on that on that record. But the, this, what's significant for me in that record is that was my introduction to working with them. So that relationship continued, even though they were unhappy with Laswell. Mm. And did you, I mean, to be honest, I really like, I really like the album. Um, so, and I think the songs, some of the songs were amazing, Saved and Goddamn the Sun and Mary Jane. And, you know, it just was a good vibe. I mean, did you sort of, at the time of recording it, what, what was the atmosphere like? Did it... You know, were you surprised afterwards when, you know, there was all the little kind of, I don't know, bad vibe. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, they weren't happy. I was happy. I felt really, you know, it was one of those things you think, oh, God, the one album I really love and the band hate it. Did you did you sort of think this was going difficult? Was it hard at the time? Well, I don't even I don't even know about the band. I just think Michael Girard hated it, you know. So I don't know about really the rest of the band. Um, I think every, you know, everyone kind of had their own thoughts and maybe not, not everything was a hill to, to die on. So they didn't necessarily <laughs> have a big thing. Think, they didn't necessarily have a big need to voice an opinion. Yes. Um, also that band has always been a rotating cast, cast of people. Unlike, uh, unlike another band that was unhappy with working with Bill Laswell, which is white zombie. Um, also that was another record that Laswell got to produce and brought here to the studio and white zombie but they were more of a collective band. Like they were always like the same lineup. And then when they had even changed one member, it was a big deal where Swans had people coming in and out of it all the time. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to say what the whole band thought. But um, at the time I recognized that there was tension. There was tension within the band. There was tension between Jarbo and Michael. And um, uh, we were all sympathetic to Jarbo actually, because she has a much more pleasant personality than Michael, that's for sure. So we were all... Um, actually on her side and um uh so there was that tension which i didn't understand really i thought it was like people that have been you know married or working together for so long so everything is like loaded you know mm -hmm. every little issue issue symbolizes you know five one issue f symbolizes ten uh, uh transgressions of some sort right so everything is loaded there's a lot of tension people have short fuses and, uh, you know, I, I did perceive a little bit like that, you know, Laswell, you know, came from a place where you had a lower tolerance for some dilettante aspects of the music that were in in Swans, you know, which was, um, you know, because Bill's also mainly worked with other instrumentalists. I think that the bands that he toured, toured the South with, in the mid seventies were like funk bands, you know, they were like dance bands. There might've been singers, but he really worked with like, he was working with instrumentalists. Yes. Um, so the whole idea of like this kind of just weird outsider kind of poetic sensibility 
you know, like Goddamn the Sun, for instance, just 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 didn't touch Laswell. So he kind of thought it was, you know, I think particularly Goddamn the Sun, he thought it was kind of funny or something, you know. So I don't, so I don't think he really, it, it didn't really resonate with him as like a, a sort of poetry. Whereas I was used to that. I was I felt I was just just used to that. And I think I was just more accepting of of um, you know being in situations where not everyone is the greatest musician. You know, yeah. there's poetry is it maybe dubious poetry or actually is there something brilliant in there you know i don't really know and but i'm fine with it i'm glad that it exists you know i know well, so i think i'm i'm easier to i'm easier going and i thought bill was a bit harsh on those things and i think bill quickly realized or thought that this project was not going to be very successful and uh, maybe he started getting a little embarrassed you know, because it was, uh, and, and he tried to interject a lot of his players, right. And the people that he played with. So he took a lot of control and, uh, you know, tried to apply his sense of standards, his sense of higher standards in musicianship, particularly. And, uh, that's kind of weird. And, but also on the other hand, even though someone like, like Gerard, like he, his, his disappointment with the record also shows his over-involvement with these things, because, to me, a lot of, because there is a, like, for instance, this person, Nikki Scopolinas, who played a lot of the string parts, because there's, like, weird instruments in there. There's, like, bazooki, you know, or mandolin or stuff like yeah. that. There's weird, like, string instruments um, or exotic instruments or whatever. So um, I, I don't think that that has a, the word that we, that, that was thrown around a lot back then in a derogatory way was muso. So there was these people that with with music educations that were like that that's where they were coming from and that was looked on bad poorly, and so I think that that muso thing isn't really evident on the record. I mean, definitely Laz will put it in there where you got some people that really know how to play, um, but I don't think it's I, I don't think it's under I don't think the record's undermined. So I'm fine with all that, you know. Yeah. And and the fact and the fact that the production is a little slick is also. I don't worry about the production being a little slick any more than I worry about the production being not slick enough. Like there's a, like it's either one, either my worry about either one would be worrying too much about the minutia, not enough about the big picture. So it's a little slick. Why would I, why would that like sink the boat if I'm looking at the big picture? Same as the opposite. If it's a little underproduced. Right. So uh, I, so that's why I was always okay. In fact, you might even be proof of that. You probably, not listening to it, like wondering why it's so well produced on such and such levels. You probably just appreciate the big picture still, you know? So, um, so I feel that I'm like, I'm with you on that. Like I I still appreciate it and think it's a, um, a good record. And I think it was a healthy, a healthy progression and also got Michael into doing um, um, also like, cause he later did more like folk oriented music, right? He did, uh, he had his, he, he dissolved swans and did angels of light. Yeah. And that was more of like American folk who involved more string instruments and more focus on his playing acoustic guitar. I feel that that the genesis of that actually goes back to Burning World. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I, I do remember the Swans had such a reputation for, I don't know, playing live and trying to get some sort of note that meant the audience would sort of literally have to throw up all over themselves and each other. You know, I don't know if you remember that story of those really, you know, getting some bass sound that tried to get people to vomit at a Swans concert, you know. I don't remember that specifically, but specifically, but I mean, really the whole thing was, um, you know, your... Uh, the whole idea was to be extremely challenging, um, you know, physically and mentally and to challenge it to be an experience that challenges your whole like premise for even existing. Right. So that was the, 
that was the, it was supposed to go all the way right mm-hmm. it was supposed to be for the the same reason people do a lot of like uh, uh, self mutilation and like spiritual rituals and stuff like that to feel pain and stuff to just really get at the so it was kind of like that so you go to a swan show and you might as well be like you know hanging from hooks like you know lakota native americans in like the sundance and a sundance or something so you know so that was the it was the sonic version of that so that was a sort of that's where they were coming from that's where it was going yeah yeah i mean one of the another band that i loved during the late 80s and into the 90s was silverfish who were on ouija records and then they signed to alan mcgee's creation records did you work on their album organ fan you know a lot yeah and was it recorded leslie um, yes leslie stewart chris and fuzz so uh did they all record that album in that studio I believe that was all recorded in my place. They were Scottish, right? Yeah. Well, no, Leslie was Scottish and the rest were just, yeah, from London, I think, the South. So, yeah. So how did yeah. they find themselves? Because they were part of the North London squat noise scene with My Bloody Valentine, the Faith Healers, you know, bands like, you know, Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. So, yeah. So how did you discover or how did they discover you and why did they record there, here? I think that that came via Jim Thurwell. Right. Did it not? The fetus, I think. Fetus, yes. Possibly. I don't know. I mean, is I mean, he on that record? I mean, it, no. Fetus is a little bit like, he didn't record, like you don't see his name on there. I don't think so. I mean, I think by then, I think this is probably the last album they did, but I might be wrong. But this is on Creation Records. So did they come to New York for a couple of weeks to record that? Um. I guess they did. Why do I want to? Maybe it's because Jim Thurwell's a Scottish Scots person. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm not Scot. I, I meant to say Australian, right? He's like Australian, but his like mom's in Scotland, or just he's. So maybe that's maybe I'm wrong, and there's no connection. But I'm pretty sure they were pals. I think that that's how I met them. I can almost see my meeting Leslie and talking to her for the first time at this bar called Max Fish, which was on the Lower East Side and was frequented a lot by. Uh, Jim Thorwell and and myself and a lot of that kind of crew, um, and I, I I think that's how I met them. Yeah, so I he, don't know. So he's the producer and you're the engineer on it. Ah, okay. So he was on it. I mean, the reason I get I get all con- conflated with this with or mixing up the projects is is that Thorwell was a little bit like Bill Laswell in my life, where I would start like there was so much so much work and so many different projects i would start losing track of what we were working on yes. so i'd be you know i'd be like well yeah because sometimes with thurwell i'd be like there'd be like two things with two things maybe sometimes three things we were working on at the same time you know and then also everyone loved jim and people were always trying to get him to come in on something right so there was projects that he was producing or there was uh, projects where he would just be a guest and come in and do some noise or he would come in and co-mix with me in the band you know there was some stuff with lydia and um and and Thurston, for instance, there's Thurston Moore, like, uh, um, what was it like? Uh, was the crumb, good? right? The cr- something like that, right? The crumb, or so that was a single, or like Stink Fist, or I don't know. So there's all these things that I even can't keep it straight. Let's say they all use pseudonyms. Jim Thurwell was like Clint Ruin sometimes, so I couldn't keep it straight, right? So I get the projects kind of mixed up. Yes. Um, but so, you, so this, yeah. yeah, I just wondered what your memories of that album and that period was, whether or whether it was just kind of another blur of, 
you know. Uh, with, with Silverfish was a kind of a, a, a bit of a blur. I remember, for some reason, I just remember Leslie a lot. I think she was uh, super nice and, and, and really, and she really seemed to enjoy making her music. And I remember the guitar player. Um, he, he, he was black, right? With yeah, with black. Dread, dreadlocks. Yeah, he, uh, he was also just like a lot of fun, you know? And um, I, um, oops. Um, he, um, oops. Yeah, yeah he was. Uh, I think, uh, at the, I think at that stage, it was probably their third album and they'd done quite a few EPs, but I think it was also their last album together before they kind of went their separate ways. And I think Leslie then went and did a solo project called Ruby with, I think that was what she called herself. Ah, And that was kind of quite an ambient thing. So I think she'd done Silverfish for about five years and it probably had run its course. So um, yes, that was the end of it, really. That was the the end. Yeah, I don't don't remember that much about it. I just remember there were nice people. Yes. And it was within the whole hodgepodge of like, unusual music I, I kind of remember it being a little more efficient than some of the music I was used to recording you know it was a little more I think they were all a little bit more experienced and professional or something like it had that feeling of a little more um done well uh um what would be the word um yeah they were a little bit more musically accomplished and you know because it seems like a lot of the projects that I've worked with and I've gotten used to used to this as being just a, a factor. We're kind of train wrecks. I feel like I've worked with a lot of bands. It, it seemed to it almost seemed to be like a New York thing. It almost started seeming for a while that oh, if a, and even now, like if a band's from New York, it's going to be a bit noisier. It's going to be a little less well rehearsed. It's going to be a little more chaotic. The gear's going to be breaking down more, um, and it's just going to be uh, there's going to be more like substance problems, and the, you know, it's just going to be more and then and then less likely and then more likely people not from new york that it's their act is together so their, their, their act was together and their act sonically like everything worked they, they they had well thought out ideas that worked together like in the same song and well arranged in yeah. a way where like you know I, I got sort of used to like most of the stuff i, I do it's a little huh it's a little like oh things are going together that uh maybe shouldn't be going together or you don't know why they're going together or did you guys really think about if these are even in the same key or I mean all kinds of stuff like these are just a little all over the place a little crazier and um and that seems to be I, I wondered I've actually I must say I have wondered if it was in something about the energy or the pace in New York makes music come out that way a bit uh, but but I do remember that was a bit of a memory a feeling that I, I felt working with them I was like really kind of uh, to get it's efficient it's together it's like everything works yes um, and it shows in the production it's kind of well put together it well is. put together with without being like a high-end production you know yeah and well they did have a fantastic sound but did, we, uh, earlier you mentioned that you had a period working with a lot of african bands when what years was what what was the year or years that you you suddenly found yourself sort of thinking oh this is a different vibe i think it must have been like like 87 or something like there's some little trough in there when I'd already done like a bunch of indie indie stuff and was doing maybe a little less and just by happenstance because also um there's a lot of time where you might think oh I did these interesting records there might be a John Zorn record there might be a um 
a Sonic Youth record, that, that stuff was not a constant parade. Like, mm. you know, the studio was not a constant parade of like notable bands and records. There's a lot of, and I don't want to say filler because it's, it's, it doesn't do people justice, you know, but there was a lot of stuff that just never made it to people's ears and, and it's never made it to people's lips yes. never got talked about. And so there's a lot of that. So um, sometimes there might be just like, Oh, Sonic Youth came in this year. And then like, so things were kind of slow, just generally, it was just slower. So there was a year where just by maybe by coincidence, I just got less of that stuff. I sort of lost interest. And um, um, I did get into this little groove there where I did, um, it seemed like I was doing a bunch of African bands and, uh, and then they would be return customers. So there'd be Africans that, that were in a few different bands and they all seemed to kind of like working with me and, um, also a lot of these bands would play in Manhattan, right? So they would, they would, they were actually sort of professional. They would like play, they would go to like touristy areas yeah. and actually play so to make money. So they actually rubbed shoulders with a lot of the like post-punk people just inevitably. So inevitably there was someone that met one of these Africans. So it, it was a little close to all that. I don't know how they found me. It's not like I went seeking them, but there was a minute there where, yeah, it was like a good year where it seemed I do, like, oh, I do really remember doing that. a lot of African bands. I do remember the sort of mid to late 80s, uh, yeah, 80s, where there was bands like the Bundu Boys and the Four Brothers and Thomas McFumo. And yeah, I mean, John Peel was, you know, was was certainly introducing us to a lot of that music. And there was various record labels like Stern Records and the Peter Gabriel album, um, one Royal, Royal, Real World Records as well, which was good. So um, I think, you yeah, know. And it wasn't purely, it wasn't purely traditional either. You know, there was stuff like with drum machines, for instance. Yes. Um, but a lot of it really did use like West African motifs and stuff. The guitar, um, the guitar was often very sort of rhythmic. And I do remember being very excited by the Bundu boys the first time I heard them. So, um, well, yeah. well, one, one guy in particular, I don't remember his name, his name was Scotty. And he was like in all these, um, all these African bands. He was like from Ghana or something. And uh, he, yeah, he played just this fantastic, like, just like we did kind of one thing. It was just really great. It was like very clean with a lot of harmonics and a lot of de- echoes and delays and stuff. And it was just like a, this constant ringing and it was kind of like rhythmic and sort of underlaid everything. It was really fantastic. So you did that with like a drum machine, you know, and so it all, it all kind of worked out. I mean, there was a, a, a also what kind of helped is I'd, I'd, ga- I'd gathered experience because in the early days with Laswell, we worked with, um, some um, Afro-Cuban in, um, musicians. For instance, we had this Afro-Cuban um, percussionist that played on on Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Mm. Uh, on Rocket, on Rocket, there's bata drums with a, which are these like traditional Yoruba instruments from West Africa that are still played in 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 um, Cuba, and uh, they're actually quite traditional. They're actually not just traditional; they're they're sacred, so you actually never see them. It's very rare to see bata drums like played in a park or something like that. They're really done um, like in these sort of like rituals settings and, and the rhythms, the rhythms are all um, um, based, the, the rhythms themselves are like offerings to specific deities and stuff. So, so we work with this guy, Daniel Ponce, who was, that's actually one of the reasons I think Herbie really loved our, our sort of demo really of, of rocket that he heard. Um, you know, he paid for it. He said we would collaborate and that we put together something and put, Daniel Ponce playing bata on it. Um, and I think that that's that that and plus the turntablism, which were the two, which is another thing that hurt that Hancock was really kind of keen on. Yes. But I think, yeah, I think that the the Yoruban percussion 
actually had an impact on like his and um, Herbie liking the songs. He's he's sort of Afrocentric, you know, so he liked he liked that being in there. Um, so I had some experience with African music. So there was, I, I guess that also enabled when people did come to Africans did come to work with me. Um, but I knew I knew something, you know. I'd already <laughs> recorded recorded some of these. I'd recorded congas, you know. I knew stuff. Um, and how do you? And, could, and with the studio, I mean, you know, I mean, to keep any, I mean, you're quite unusual in the sense that most people don't manage to keep a scene going for that long. You know, I mean, most bands, are, you know, I find that normally last five years. They have twelve months of the honeymoon. They have the first single, the first album, if they get off the launch pad then you know the second album possibly the third and then that's the kind of end of it but but you know but running this studio you know from 1981 right through to now is is like 41 42 years it's really impressive that you've you've kept it going uh yeah i mean i um i mean one thing is like i i there's a lot of dumb luck you know i i moved to one of them last areas in proximity to Manhattan that to be massively developed. And it's, it's actually still hasn't been massively developed. Although unfortunately that looks like it's on the horizon now. Mm -hmm. So it finally might've caught, it might've finally caught up to me, but that, that was, that was dumb luck and dumb luck that of all these industrial buildings, I picked one that someone would one day try to make an art center out of like a sort of art lab, um, complex of all arts. Yes, that's. I mean, that was that. I didn't do that knowingly. I, it was, in fact, what's funny is the owners that wanted to take it that way came after I came. So I, I predate, <laughs> I predate the landlords that had this art vision, right? So when the when the when the building was bought by people that wanted to th- put the building into the arts, I was already here. I'd already been recording records and stuff. Um, and I don't think they were that aware of me. I mean, they, they knew there was a music thing happening, but they weren't that. Uh, they, they they didn't really really know. <clears throat> so I don't think I influenced their choice of buying the building. So I think it's um, that was dumb luck, um, and uh, also just my my uh, my my predilection of um, you know staying close to the grassroots. You know, because because ultimately I, I keep the studio going because of. Of key and and then also I think that that's been luck because that's been the source of of some of the better records I've done and the the, the more notable artists has been um, again unlike Laswell who really went who his whole model is was um, sort of uh, sort of forgotten legends right that he loved that he loved yes. like bringing people from the past that like Ginger Baker he did a Ginger Baker record he brought and but you know I, I like working with Ginger Baker he brought Ginger Baker here to the studio. Um, to do a solo record that's cool that's just not my dream my dream is still like again always grassroots up you know I like squats yeah you know, I like I, like <laughs> I said before I like collectives I, I do believe that that the important changes in music do happen at a very DIY level yeah you know no market no state no church you know so they start they start really without no support and and they start very community based and rely on people helping each other and having access and often have to start sort of illegally because they need to play in like illegal places. Yes. So all of that is, is appealing to me, you know, um, until the state can do a good, as good a job as like a community, you know, I'll still think illegal is preferred in many situations. Um, as far as, 
you know, like as I'm even doing that stuff, dealing with this stuff now that like when you when you go into the zone, the area of public funding for the arts, you realize it's kind of doesn't work so well, you know, like so it's it's I guess it has its place and I'd like to see more public funding. But ultimately, um, the reason I do do a lot of DIY stuff and sometimes do I have to do support places that are not like licensed, you know, like venues and stuff is because it's still it's just still better. You know, it's still better when you have people kind of doing it themselves, you know, um, even if it's like at a lower efficiency, you know, and lesser quality. Mm. Um, so my point is I've always stayed close to that. I think that that's helped the studio sustain and help me sustain because it's, it's, it's stable. It's, it's, um, it's, um, um, sustainable. And, and you must've felt quite honored when they were well, not honored, but you know, having a film made about, about the studio and yourself, it must've felt quite surreal. Um, well, it was surreal when, when, when it premiered and then I realized how much interest there was. Um, it, I mean, for initially when they started doing the film, it was going to be a short. Um, so um, it was going to be 20 minutes and then they soon realized it needed to be a feature, feature length. And it just kind of exploded from there. Also, it, I mean, I would have been, I mean, I was honored, but also the, the people that did the film um, uh, did it on a rec- on recommendation of a mutual friend, and right. they did it because it was they they did it because they did the film because it was interesting, right? And because there was an interesting story here, right? They thought it intersected with topics of gentrification and what was happening to 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 the city landscape and culture. And then one of the two was a musician. One of the two directors, uh, Ryan, was a is a musician, so he he was also interested in that. Um, they actually did not know the whole story. So I, I would have felt more, so I didn't have that feeling like, oh my God, I, I realized that it was a, 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 an interesting story, but they discovered how deep the story went once they started talking to people and asking questions and then looked at some of the records and, some, and realized some of the stuff that had happened. So it was a bit of a, dis- a journey of discovery for the, the documentary makers as well. And um, so... So, so yeah, it wasn't an immediate shock. Like, oh my God, someone's making a film about me because it, it, it started slow. It started like, oh, it's just about like music and how it intersects with gentrification and changes over time because I've been here long enough where there was a story that intersect, intersected with the changing city, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, that's a topic I like talking about. And I talk about it a lot of things. So I said, okay, well, this will be, you know, rather than, you know, it'll be more like a, a film or I didn't know where it would be, but I think it's what, so I think it's when it finally ended up in a theater, premiered in the theater and there was like, you know, it oversold. Like there was a lot of response. I was like, holy dang, that's really <laughs> has a lot of interest. And then even more so when I started realizing that there was interest. Um, it's funny because that film itself, the documentary, um, Sound and Chaos, the, the doc actually helped me realize the value of the studio. Because there was a there was a minute there before the documentary was made where I was questioning whether I should continue continue to make this make this the hill I was dying on, mm-hmm. you know, like should I continue? Is there something else? Should I be doing somewhere else something similar but somewhere else? I don't know. Like I was asking these questions, and then when the documentary came out, particularly when I saw the response, I realized, oh no! For one thing, this is good, and 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 it's not easy to conjure up, you know, 40, 30, at that time, 30, 35 years of, of value. Mm. You know, that's not easy. That doesn't come easy. That takes 30, 35 years. So I better probably stick to it. 
And <laughs> then I felt almost like a bit of a responsibility. Like if I was happily happy to take on the responsibility of something that had like some historic merit, because all these things seem obvious to us now that it happened at the studio. But for a while I thought it was uh, until the city landscape started changing. The fact that all these things happened in the same space was not that particularly interesting. Now it's interesting, but there was a minute there. It seems obvious now, but it wasn't obvious at a, at a certain time. For me, it was just a discography. Yeah, mm. my, this is my name. I am so-and-so. Here's a list of records that I did. I don't know what else to tell you, <laughs> you know? And then it wasn't, and all a lot of these epiphanies about the value of that discography came slowly. Like for instance, there was a time when people didn't cross connect a lot of the genres. Like people think of me and just doing avant-garde music, but they wouldn't think about this. And then mm. they would think about me doing the rock stuff. And then they wouldn't think about like some jazz stuff I did. And then it took, it's funny because there was a, there's a magazine called uh, tape op, right. Which is about this. It's, it's a, it's tape op as operator, tape operator. Mm -hmm. It's um, about, it's a, a magazine about um, for engineers. And then there was an article there that actually sort of, shifted the paradigm where that the writer there pointed out look at these different albums these how disparate this is these different genres and then then suddenly that had value which i didn't even see that in myself so that took that writer to kind of to kind of generate that where i'm like oh wow i guess he's right and then then there was interest from that that sort of bumped things up in a certain way where it wasn't just a collection of records yeah i realized oh there's this interconnectivity with different genres and that means something it, first of all it took other people saying it meant something for me to go oh it means something and then when the documentary came out which is interesting interesting this documentary is about the studio it's not about me really although the the the, the documentary makers when they're interviewed they'll go well of course we have to tell the story of Martin BC since it's his studio, but it's really about the studio. Um, that hadn't been done before. So that's a first where um, it actually took the studio itself as having been like, whoa, whoa, all this stuff coming to the same place in this like place that hasn't changed hardly in like freaking, you know, 30 at that, at that time, now 41 years, but at that time, like, you know, uh, closing in on 35 years, 30 years, mm. um, that connection, it took that documentary to make that connection, even in my own mind, where I was like, oh, wow, I really got to hang on to this place. Um, and it took the response of people. The, the, the thing also, because I did also this 35-year anniversary record, which came out in uh, 2017 or 2018. It took a while to come out, but there was a 35-year anniversary record called uh, BC35, BC35. Yeah. Um, the response for that, like, for instance, in Brooklyn. So it was sort of, it's sort of at the same time as the documentary coming out. Um, the document, what was interesting about that response is there was, there were people that didn't even know about this kind of music, actually didn't really care about this kind of music. What they cared about was that there was something that had lasted that long, that meant something to Brooklyn, that represented something of something happening on a grassroots level in Brooklyn and had sustained for that long emphasis on the sustain and the sustainability, right? That people like hankering for something, just not dying and just not being shoved <laughs> to the side, right? And when I realized that people cared about it, cared about the studio or were impressed, oh my God, wow. Well, congratulations to this guy if it's 35 years, like without even talking, without even thinking about the music, it, you know, it was just really about just the space, the sustainability and that it, it had a meaning to Brooklyn that that was astonishing to me, and then that made me um, that gave me a new perspective on the space. It made me feel the space is something to to fight for, and then and then also sometimes 
wrapping it in the language of it being like I'm servicing the community. I kind of, yes, I kind of absolutely. flip the script. I, I have to for, also for different kinds of survival, political survival, as I flip the script, I'm also serving the community. I have to remind the building, it doesn't matter what I think. That's what the community thinks. Like, will this work? I hope it works. I'm not the one who's going to say it works. It's the, it's everyone else who's going to say it's work, it works or it doesn't work. Like for instance, what happens to the studio, right? Um, like, I, yeah, I guess I'm the person that makes the decisions, but, Ultimately, it's only as good as everyone, all these other people, this whole other community thinking that that's good or like, for instance, if the studio has to move ever at any point, yes. you know, that'll have to be, it, it's not just me. It's not just a little place for me by myself. People are going to have to come here. They're going to have to like it. And it matters what they think. Yeah. Um, so, and I guess, and I guess as well, I mean, because we, everything gets kind of quite into heritage, don't they? All, all sort of, we like to, I suppose when we look back with great nostalgia, you know, like people are now looking back at the CBGBs and the mud club and Max's Kansas city. But at the time when those things were happening, there was no kind of real value. I mean, there was, but there is, you know, we take it for granted, you know, like I look back at the, the little scenes that I was part of and the club nights and all those bands. We you didn't think, wow, they're amazing bands. It's only later on that you can sort of value them or reevaluate them and think, oh yeah, that was, that was quite special. I'm not looking them, not through rose tinted sunglasses, but just seeing it slightly differently now, 30 years later. And I guess what you're doing with your studio is that you're always creating new music for that time, aren't you? So you're not sort of just hankering back to the 80s and that kind of golden tip period, which obviously means that you're, you're still relevant now rather than a sort of heritage studio where people come around like a museum go, oh, look at that studio. That's where, you know, Sonic Youth sat. And oh, look at that. That's where the Swans sat. You know, it's like, oh, no, this is still a working place creating new music yeah well, well well that's something i've had to discover usually through other genres like first is jazz right so jazz is a, a genre that was declared dead by who's it that it, i think it was frank zappa declared it dead right um, right in, in the late 60s early 70s uh, that's an interesting concept i mean the, the concept the, the reality of it which i've had to be educated on by jazz musicians is that it, it just be, it's independent of the market or what anyone thinks or what level of popularity. It's a culture that has its own arc. Um, so jazz today is different than jazz at some other time. So it has its own traditions. Um, usually the idea is that it's better for people knowing the, the history of the genre that they're making, but that they forge on and to create new things. Um, the reality is, is that there's a lot of post-punk sound and no wave sound in like young bands. And when I mean young, I mean um, uh, 20s, people in their 20s, late 20s, for instance. So that kind of continues. Uh, I mean, the whole sense of like what retro means um, is all vague. It used to be, it used to be easier to, to pinpoint. Yes. You know, it was, it was more obvious um, why, um, something might be, it was more, it stood out more when we had these very black and white convulsions of culture, right? Like at the late sixties and suddenly everyone was, had long hair and beads or something, you know? And so that would be a good, so if you were a band with like skinny ties, then it was like really stood out. So things, it's, it's really funny what would retro actually mean, you know, these days. Cause there was, there was also a sense that retro meant more conservative, and now, like looking back, they might be the other way around. The more conservative stuff might be now. So, um, so that sort of paradigm. That's why people were people were 
in the interest of being forward thinking weren't interested in in being retro because it showed less forward thinking and more conservative but whereas now you might look back at some of that older stuff and think maybe it was more forward thinking than stuff now so it's not so easy anymore to really talk about like a single arrow of time of like well that's all this is new and then that means certain things it's a bit more messy than yes. that and, um so and also some of the kids that i know that do post-punk um now um you, I mean, do, would anyone look at them and say, oh, that's retro or is, it's just like a niche, you know what I mean? Like, so, so that's, because sometimes I do feel bad about being too folk focused about, because I do watch, try to watch myself on being too focused about the past. So I always used to think that nostalgia was a bad word. Mm-hmm. So I would never want to be nostalgic horrors, <clears throat> but it's a mixed bag of that stuff. Because I also feel like I should defend and I do defend sometimes that if I can evaluate two things, one way of doing things now, one way of doing things in the past, I can evaluate those two things and I can determine that the old way might've been better in some ways. Why does that, why does that not have value? You know, and people are shortchanging themselves. People are shortchanging themselves in a way if they're not willing to consider that some things might've been done better or might've been a better idea initially or Mm. in the past. So I'm here to remind people on some things that, well, actually, you know what? I've had to see it this way and that way. And I have all my faculties still. And I can (laughs) tell you that such and such was better. That was a better paradigm. That was a better model of whatever, doing things or how a city is or how music industry works or um, how music business works or any of that stuff, right? Um, So I can say, well, you know, there's a lot to be said for pre-internet, for instance, you know, with with music. So I feel so... uh, I think um, I do fight back, even though, yeah, I do feel like nostalgia is a bad word. I kind of, I do fight back a bit on um, not thinking about the past. I think, but but I think also nostalgia is, first of all, it's a less used word, mm-hmm. right? So, but I think it's less of a, of a bad word now to look at the past because everyone's kind of, kind of doing it. We've gotten to this post-history place where you kind of, um, there's less of a sense of of love of completely new things coming and i think a big part of that is actually technology because the, really for there to be new music there needs to be new tools which seems to be the case all the time so you went from acoustic music to you met to, to you went from folk music to like uh rock and hillbilly music as they called it hillbilly uh, you know like rockabilly because yeah. you could plug in it was electric Right. So you can go electric and then drum kits and then and then with computers and then you had like uh, programming and music programming and stuff and then effects. Right. So you have like shoegaze. What, what would shoegaze be without a pedal board with like 50 <laughs> effects in it? Right. Yeah. So you need these new tools. Right. So when new tools is going to make a new sound, it's going to make a new. It's it's crazy how important that is. If there if if, if we didn't have our tool makers to to con- to contribute new tools, what would we what would even happen? We just continue making the same music probably. Because yes. um, it seems like new tools is kind of essential. So right now, I don't know what new tools there are. Even a lot of electronica seems like almost retro to me now. Now also, a lot of drum programming and stuff. It's it's uh, um, actually it's funny because now people are blatant about it. It's like old school, the vintage synthesizers and and drum machines and stuff. And so um, that's no longer just the cutting edge that it once was. But you know, I I, I ultimately. In, in, in my experience, I don't think I've ever really experienced things being completely new. They're just things get deconstructed a certain kind of way, like with like a lot of experimental music where you just take music. It's supposed to be 
you know, are harmonious or supposed to be concordant or rhythmically and then you sort of deconstruct it so it sort of mm-hmm. falls apart or makes movies noisier or you combine things in different ways right so you combine things that have never been combined before that in all my life that has seemed to be the the mother of originality or perceived originality is just taking things that were already there deconstructing them or putting them into different combinations or like i said before just new tools i mean that's the big 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 the delivery that's the mother load of of innovation where suddenly things really can sound very different because you have to, but ultimately it's funny because you can go back and think of electric. You can have like folk bands playing with electrified guitars and to our ears. Now we can go, well, yeah, it's still folk music, right? We don't, to, to us, the new tool isn't that defining. Right. But back at the time it was probably, well, they, they were screaming Judas at, at, at Bob Dylan, right? Yes, because absolutely. He went electric. So to them, that was that was like a revolution. That was like a collapse of the paradigm was to <laughs> plug in. Yes. But that's him. But that I mean, running, you know, the studio and, and the characters that you've had to work with, how do you manage to to navigate those kind of complex kind of moments at times? Because there's obviously some extreme characters you've had, you know, in your studio, in your life, and you've had to sort of deal with it and then keep working and then sort of continue the mission for the next year. I mean, I just wondered on a personal level, not professional as well as personal, how you kind of do that and sort of not lose faith or just let it get you sort of so wound down, you just think, oh, you know, I'm just had enough. Um, Well, there's definitely some, which I don't really struggle with, but there's definitely some mental health management that has to go into that. You know, so it, it takes from experience that I kind of um, just accept that there's going to be difficulties yes. and that they've never been, in the end, um, that negative or that damaging or whatever. So it's just accepting a certain amount of, of you know, bad situations. You know, I'm even looking at some projects now looking coming up where I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there's some uh, some difficulties with personalities and with, with, with people coming and I have no reason to jump the gun and think, Oh, this is not working and I should distance myself. Mm. But, you know, I just have to kind of accept because also from experience that's happened a lot where I anticipate something being weird and then it's not weird. Yeah. And it's hard to predict. And um, in the end, the, the frustrations that come from that are, are fairly brief. So I guess it's like going to the dentist, you know, you need, you know, you need to, you know, you need to go, you know, there'll be some pain. And then, but you know, from experience that it'll be over the next morning, the next morning you'll go, okay, well, the pain's over. Um, Does that kind of answer your question? Well, it's also, I suppose, I mean, I suppose I sort of slightly came across part of you. I was listening to one of those um, podcasts with Lydia Lunch talking about, you know, New York a lot. And she's often got people on from New York and, you know, and I thought, wow, you know, she's quite, a hard person to um yeah kind of she doesn't read the room does she and she really hits it and I'm thinking you know with her scene and her take on New York and the punk scene and just thinking about some of the characters like Lydia and various other people I just wondered how you you know having to deal with that and then sort of moving on to the next project or sometimes having to work in that space and you know just on my own level sometimes finding those moments quite hard work and and can just take a lot of headspace out yeah i mean there are people that i i feel like i've graduated from from working with 
Um, so I've graduated from working with Michael Jarrah and Swans, you know, for a few reasons. So I, mm. but I think that's fine. I mean, I did it and stuff came out of it and it should just not continue. Yes. Um, I don't, um, I, I actually had more of a, more of a thick skin, you know, because I was, first of all, when I was younger, I was also, I mean, society in general were, was more accepting of difficult personalities than, than it is now. So there was a time when we would find someone kind of dictatorial um, and then we would be uh, people that had to deal with the, dict- with the, the petty dictator, the, the tyrant mm. in the band or whatever. We'd all kind of talk and go, well, but it's good music. You know, so I think that there was a sense that we had no, uh, there wasn't a lot of options, but to just kind of put up and that that was human nature with like um, tough eggs, right? But now I think that, that society has less of a tolerance of that. You're, there's a lot more like, I don't need this, right? I could be working on my screenplay. I could be working on my yes. like other band. I could be like at home in my home little recording studio and coming up with ideas. There's all kinds of stuff. You have more options. So us, uh, we don't really abide tough personalities. Um anymore and um i try to um you know i also have certain protocols like i try to get to know people before working with them yeah um so i um i try to apply uh so i am aware i try to navigate i try to do a lot of preemptive uh managing of of what kind of situations i'm going to get myself into so i just try to be careful you know i have a situation coming up in in a few days where i'm like oh this person's getting a little uptight a little like manic and kind of getting a little pushy on some things I, I guess you could say it was not not respecting boundaries or something like that but then i thought you know what in that project there's like two of my best friends also mm-hmm. so then, you know i think we're good because there's two of my best <laughs> friends this person would be here it'll be nice you know it's it's every every just it's funny because i'm used to things being work and as things are psychological work that's a little tougher for me yeah. thinking that that but that is tough men psychologically but it's not so so from experience i know it's not so bad i've also sort of couched things that i don't like i don't take cold inquiries right so the like um like my my website doesn't does not have a equipment list for instance it's to limit cold inquiries um, yeah. and usually i haven't i have enough people contact me to work to fill the calendar so i usually don't really need to make a big effort to fish for work you know luckily so uh, uh, that, that that's also a filter, right? So when people say, "Oh, so and so recommended," I I call you and I heard what you your work with them. That means something that they they come recommended, right? So there's so, um, but I'm quite aware of of that actually of like uh, um, the 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 psychological aspect in the studio and it can that it can be kind of difficult. And I also try to manage it like I, I try not to have like like too many marathons, yes. so shorter sessions and in little blocks. So that people come three days in a row, that's it. So I, I really don't do three days. I don't do more than three days in a row with the same project. Then, then there's a couple of days. That doesn't mean I stop working. I might do other projects, but I don't see those same three faces, you know, like I did with the first Sonic Youth record, where the, the, those same faces are in every day for two weeks. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yes, you can just have too much of a good thing. It's just, it's just, it's just interesting, isn't it? Because you just, you know, you, you're in, you know, a bit like you mentioned the dentist. I mean, for us who go to the dentist, it's a big moment in the in the calendar. And the same with you, you, you know, you're there all the time. And for these bands and artists coming in, this is their big moment that they're 
hoping to create something amazing. So they're very heightened. And I'm just kind of curious how you deal with 40 years of slightly heightened people who could be getting a bit on the edge and just thinking, blimey, and then putting, you know, doing that project and then, right, I'm on the next project. And giving yourself that, that space to deal with your own processes, you know, which is quite yeah, interesting. Well, usually, usually people are, 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 are chiller than you might think, you know. Um, even the band Dresden Dolls, for instance, that were, were deliberately trying to break, right? So that was a band that was trying to, they, they actually believed in themselves Surprisingly, because their music wasn't that commercial, but you know what I'm talking about, the Dresden Dolls? Yeah, the Amanda Palmer. Yeah, right. So they, they definitely believed that they had they were onto something. Um, again, it's one of these things where I was surprised how well it did. You know, I, I, to me, that did not, it did not speak to me as like, oh, wow, this is going to be big. I did not feel that at all, but it t- turned out to be fairly big. Um, but, but, that, but they intended, they, they had that on their minds. So they, they were, that's just the fact that they came from Boston each time, each time to work at, at my studio. That's a big drive. And they did it because the, one of their favorite bands swans had been recording here and they, um, you know, but they really were thinking it could go somewhere. They were relatively chill, right? So you're thinking everything is riding on this, yes. but you'd think that you'd be, they'd be at each other's throats and like, like, and my throats, right. And like balls of stress is intention, but actually, no, not really. You know, they were kind of fun. So I think that's something, I think it's, there's a real elixir of making music and that when people are actually in the process of making music, that just take over the ghost, the, 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 the spirit of, of music does sort of take hold of people as they're kind of making it. And so the whole idea that they might be kind of, um, macking or jonesing on like some greater success from the music or making some big impact or whatever it might be on their mind does kind of, it chills out more than, than you might think. I think some of the, the, the t- interpersonal tensions uh, and, and tensions be- between the, the artists and the, and the music has, has more to do with like the frustrations that happen anyway, that it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to make the music be what it, you want it to be. Right. Sometimes you have to like cooperate with the music and let it be what it's, turning out to be and just adjust a little right because it's hard to be that that uh specifically creative right yes. you have a spe- you have a thing in mind well but that's why i usually tell people sometimes when people tell me oh don't worry we know exactly what we want right i always think that that's that's a bit of a red flag <laughs> because that because that, it, that's it's just not realistic right it's going to be you have to have a good idea of where you're going that's true but if you have an, a, a, if you think of too solid if you have too solid an idea of where you think how it's going to turn out and actually be um, first of all, you might be missing on the better stuff because you might be ignoring um, uh, things and outcomes that weren't exactly as you intended that are better. Right. So you, you did it, you did it a way you didn't intend, but actually, you know, that's better somehow. Right. So you're missing that. You're too fixated on your preconceptions, but I think people usually let the spirit take them over. And so the, the issue of like, trying to make it in music or trying to make an impact with all that, all that sort of, um, I, I think it chills out a bit more. I've never seen that be that toxic. Right. Other things are toxic, but not that. Yes. And do you, Surprisingly. Yes. And when you come to be, you know, the band yourself and playing your own music, do you, do you find that a, a nice, you know, juxtaposition, not juxtaposition, but, you know, another nice moment to sort of think, oh, yeah, this is this is kind of interesting being on this side of the process. 
Well, well, that's why I've always done it. I mean, I, I think that that's fairly common with a lot of people needing to be on the other side of the camera. Um, and it, it's definitely relaxes me if I'm continuously worrying about what, how other people think of what other people think of my work on their music and trying to make sure that I'm filtered, their music is filtering through me and my studio in a way that's going to make, <coughs> make them happy and that they're going to be also happy physically in my space. Right. Got to make sure that they're comfortable here. There's a whole bunch of things I have to need to consider. Yeah. Um, so they, um, you know, it's nice to just not worry about that for a second and to work on music where I'm just, it's just me and I can get to like explore my own ideas. And so that, that's incredibly, it's essential and, and healing and, and yeah, so I'm very happy when I'm working on my own stuff. It's almost like if I can find, no matter what happens, if I can continue working on my own music, we're, I'm good. Like it's all, it can almost be like that. Like whatever's happening to whatever even bad outcomes could happen in the world or whatever. If I can work on my own stuff, because anytime that happens, I'm happy. Like I'm happy when I'm working on my own stuff. So all kinds of disasters could be happening. And if that, if that, I think if I can continue sustaining, making my own music, I think that that's the, the, the recipe for my happiness really. Excellent. That's a good thing. And just, I know you probably hate this question, but um, how, have, how have you found the last couple of you know, years with the pandemic and how is New York sort of recovering from, from this kind of bizarre period? Um, well, I think, uh, excuse me. <laughs> um, I think, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, I'm actually not sick of that question. You know, when you said, I, I hope you're not sick of this question. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me what the funniest, the funniest or most memorable or something like that thing that's ever happened in the studio. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. Because that's, that's actually a very tough question. The funniest thing that's ever happened. You know? But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, the pandemic, yeah, it's, well, I managed to continue. There was a weird uptick in like remote mixing. Right. People would ask me to mix something remotely, which I really don't like as a, as a way of working. I think it's just inferior, you know, to, to working in person. And, um, you know, and I hate to burst people's bubble who think that they can live anywhere in the world and still just do all the same things, just be, and don't have to be in the same room as people. Right. So people, oh, I can live anywhere and then we can do things remotely now. You know, and, and like make song, I'll send back some files back and forth. And um, I hate to break their bubble, but I just don't think that that works so well for music. And I think that um, if you really want to make music well and do it well, you're really going to have to just physically go and live in the same place as these other people that you're working with or hoping to work with or intermingle with. But there is no there is no substitute which is a drag with the way we're going also with the pandemic. Um, um, it's funny because I do talk to people that feel that they could, that being able to take your work with you is a godsend. I mean, it's fan fantastic for, for what we hope is a, um, of the, the world of touring coming back so mm. that people can tour, people can go on tour and actually bring their work with them. Like, so the fact that people might be able to do that, I, I know some musicians that even think that they can do remote music classes so they might actually be able to do music classes from like a hotel room on the road you yeah. know this kind of stuff or they could even do it from the back of the van maybe even or something so um that's potentially a great benefit but what i don't like again is the idea of the too much talk of of um 
and that's a bit of the the big struggle now. It's like, well, um, cities with urban areas, concentrated urban areas with offices aren't really going to be necessary um, for a lot of people's work, right? So to what extent do people need to even live in those urban areas? So that's the big question. It does seem that people still need to live in urban areas. A lot of people feel that way, but that's definitely, there's been, I feel like I've read so many opinion pieces about what the fate of like a city will be because of sort of what the pandemic has taught a lot of people about what they want or what's possible. And mm. of course, technology, like technology really jumping to the rescue with a lot of the Zoom and like remote work options and stuff, right? So technology, Silicon, that's why Silicon Valley is having such a, a winning streak right now because they've really been able to, to, to take advantage of all this. So, so that's sort of changing. I don't, um, so yeah, for, I was at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing a lot of remote mixing and I did it just because I had time. My problem with remote mixing is that it takes longer than in-person mixing. That's the main thing. Um, and I don't like that everyone settles. Like you got to settle because it's hard to, it's such a slow back and forth process um, and it's hard to communicate. And when you communicate something, it's misunderstood. And then when you kind of, it's just sluggish. And there's a point where you go, okay, I think it's good enough because you know that that extra little detail, that extra little bit of je ne sais quoi that you want to get out of the music, it's going to be hard to communicate. I'm going to misunderstand it. I'm going to misdo it. It's going to be, it's, and it's going to take another freaking like two days. Right. So, so people are like, people settle. So that's what I don't like. Um, and also what I don't like about remote mixing is I tend to give people what I think is more of a winning possibility. Like it's mo- more likely to be to their liking right. because, because for instance, the thing that comes out of my mouth a lot, which you won't hear with remote mixing is my going, you know what? Just give me two minutes. I got something on my mind. I promise I'll put a little time limit on it. It might be too weird or stupid. Just give me, just give me a sec. Right. You know, and let me two minutes and then, then we'll see. And then, so that can't really happen in remote mixing. Um, and uh, I feel like to present a perspective, an idea on something, I have to perfect it at least a little bit, just to even present it. Whereas if people are in the room together, I can go, well, blah, blah, blah. The, you know, it's easier to communicate than it's just a mock-up. It's just, just, just a rough, rough sketch. It's not even the thing. So I can mm. try stuff. So I can try stuff in person that it's hard to try stuff um, yeah. remotely. So anyway, so that was my discovery for studio work at the beginning of the pandemic. And then luckily, um, but I did it because I had time. And then plus I was working with, like, I, people were contacting me from crazy places. I think I did a punk band from Thailand, you know? <laughs> and it was like, what the hell? It was, and who wanted to sound like pussy galore? <laughs> so I was, I was like thinking of pussy galore records and listening and, and live skull was a band I worked with in New York. I was like, this is incredible. This is like young kids. These are kids in Thailand. Right. So I was like, wow, I'm really learning something here. You know, this is kind of amazing, which by the way, speaks to something that we said before is that, is that these cultures do have an arc and it yeah. is kind of nice to see, to see kids now. And it's funny because you can't really say they're being retro. They're just, it's just a, a niche, you know? Yes. Um, but yeah. So I found that with this remote of like a band in Thailand doing like, pre-post-punk if that means anything and um yeah i don't i don't know it's 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 a tough spot in music now there's the demise of bands right people say where are the bands there's less people doing bands that's so weird it's all because of difficulty rehearsing because of spaces and covid and covid fears or concerns or places opening it's also costs having a band is kind of more expensive if any anytime you put a real drummer into the equation it's more expensive there's more mm-hmm. transportation costs 
you know, it's, it's, it takes up a lot of room. You need, it's louder. You, you can't really do it with a, in a living room, you know? So there's like a lot of, there's a lot more of like couples doing music, right? There's a lot of these like <laughs> husband and wife, like duos, like playing all the instruments or something. So it's like really weird. Like the whole thing of a band seems a little more rare. It's almost like, and I hate to say it, but that's almost seeming a bit rare. Just the fact it's a band, just yes. like it's an ensemble is, is a bit more retro where it seems like what's happening, which isn't really retro is, I'm seeing it's funny. I'm seeing a lot of whereas normally there would be an opening band. Now it's like, okay, this like solo act and it'll be like a table full of stuff and might even be experimental music or something. So it'll be like experimental electronic noise or something. But whereas in the past, there might be a whole band doing it. Right. So it'd be, mm-hmm. Oh, there's six bands playing tonight. Well, now it's one band and like all these other things are like solo. Maybe one thing's a duo. So <laughs> it's definitely kind of weird. I mean, luckily, I mean, just in terms of business, I don't really need to, have that many uh, people. Uh, I don't need that many projects to kind of keep the studio busy, right? I only work on like five or six things at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the studio sustains and, um, you know, some of these genres continue. Like jazz seems to be like, like an avant or noisier avant-garde jazz. That seems to, to still be out there and they still need a studio like mine, right? Because they, 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 they're a lot large on some, they'll be like quintets and sextets <laughs> and stuff. So that still yeah. exists. So I don't, I don't know, but the world of uh, rock bands and also rock bands, like getting rid of their drummer, that's a bit of a surprise. <laughs> like, like this band pop 1280 that, that I work with, that was on sacred bones. So a label I like in your, in, in, in New York city, uh, pop 1280, they kind of got rid of their drummer. The drummer's still there. They can still have the drummer in the band. I went to the last Pop 1280 show and the uh, drummer's in the audience. I'm like, this is so weird. You have a drummer. Like, to me, it'd be no contest. If I <laughs> had a drummer, I wouldn't be doing something with, like, a drum machine. And it's like, your drummer's right here <laughs> at the show. But yet they're, like, watching and they're not playing with you. Like, but that, so I don't know what that is. I, I, I don't completely, but no. there is that thing of, like, less drummers, uh, but yeah, I mean, elect- electronic music, I think it's the reason I'm skeptical of it is there's more people involved with their computers, more people involved with their um, cell phones. It's funny because there was a minute there maybe 10 years ago with, where if people had a laptop somehow involved in their set, because there'd be people with like a drum. There was a band, um, um, Talk Normal, that I really liked. They would have a dr- drummer and then she would do these like triggers and stuff from and she was so she'd have a laptop like doing something like a like an ableton program or something yeah. on the laptop by the by the drums and she would hide it right so that'd be kind of discreetly off to the side so people people were like trying to soft pedal the whole thing of there being a computer up on the stage right that's gone now people are like yeah we make we yeah our whole life is on the computer so yes. that's so that's that, that current um domain i'm not really loving and some of it is some of it is just going to come out in the wash i think it's already clear that 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 uh, the appetite out there for like live streamed live performances is not great like people no. don't unless it's like unless it's like an extremely well extremely sought after band or artist people are not that excited about like logging into like a a, a sort of no, no audience live stream performance that's not so that's gold that's that's, the, that's, that's gold. Not, that that was People thought that was hot for like a year, right? During the pandemic, that proved. I was already skeptical. I was thinking, no, it's just not good. No, it's not good. <laughs> not 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 when it's no, it just wasn't good. I mean, just uh, okay then. So, what did you think? Because what you mentioned something there, which was quite interesting about sort of uh, being in in the same space as a, as as each other within a band. Did you? What did you feel? I 
hoping or guess you watch the Beatles Let It Be film where you know they're there together and they're just having to make music and they're kind of starting with a completely empty palette and thinking right we've got an album we've got a month let's let's get on with it did you relate to much of that if you saw it if you didn't see it then frankly I'll have to have another question you mean the film the yeah, film Let, Let It, it be? be only eight hours yeah of- I remember yeah, I remember the film. Um, I, I didn't have a cl- I didn't kind of relate to it at the time. I think it, I saw the film before I even got into like music recording. Oh no! But the the one that that they came out over Christmas, the one which is eight oh, hours. Fuck. Oh fuck! No, I didn't see that at all. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm okay then. Because Peter, because there is a film, Let It Be, right? So yeah. So that like came that. out, and it was very short, and it was very distorted with the narrative, and then Peter Jackson the the director who did you know lord of the rings he's brought it out as an eight hour film now he's kind of found all this stuff and they're just literally sitting around just starting to record you know george says right that's it i'm leaving the band then he comes back then he leaves the band (laughs) you know there's all that dynamic there's yoko sitting there you know children coming in and out them trying to you know think of what are we going to do next you know this isn't working this is working you know what should we try you know so you can just literally see them growing a song and you know we obviously because there's one bit where glenn johns who's the producer at that time says look we've got to get another song together what about that one about the long long road that you've been played you know played about with Paul and you think god that's that's the long and winding road which is one of the classics of our time but you literally see the beginning of all those songs like get back you know the way that started um that's what my hands mean you know the beginning literally the seed of those songs I just wondered if you'd seen it but as you haven't no I mean the, the thing it's funny is I'm always I am and because I do try to talk to artists I'm working with about literally anything and everything sometimes people are surprised that I'm interested in you know where they wrote a song how they wrote it how long it took um who contributed what i ask all these questions um because i'm almost i'm kind of mining from for anything that is going to give me some kind of interesting perspective on uh, the song and it's amazing how sometimes i can lead a perspective on a song in ways i'm not even sure i'll be like wow it's so funny because if i present the vocals this way if i present this way it feels it it just sort of lends it makes this topic seem more ironic than it did or it makes it feel more real or it makes it feel more portentous or something there's just some sort of feeling that ties into so I, I, i usually just mine for all kinds of information and i'm also just very very curious about the creative process um so i'm always very curious about how people end up with songs Mm. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually surprised at how much commonality there is. Like how I'm surprised how often I hear people writing songs and I'm like, Oh, wow, that's kind of what I do as well. So I'm, I'm very curious about process. In some ways I'm, I'm a little bit like Brian Eno that way, who also I felt was very curious about process, right? That's why he had those, those cards, the The oblique strategies. Yeah. Yeah, Because that was sort of like, what do you do when you hit a roadblock in your process? Right. That's what those cards were about. Um, so he was very interested in process and so am I, I'm very interested in, well, how this song because i know it's with my own music that when i when it's really working like when i finally get the song it's baffling how it actually got to that stage mm-hmm. i usually like saying that it's better than me like the song like when i really hit it on a song of my own i'm like wow i think and i'm really happy with this song it's usually better than what i feel i'm than my own talents would indicate right that that's that somehow it's better than my even my own songwriting would do because somehow ah. <laughs> Yes. So somehow there was 
somehow there was a process of building things through happenstance and through like taking chances that just delivered an outcome which it would exceed my my own talents and stuff. So I'm always curious how other other people do it. But on the same hand, on the same token, I'm kind of a very limited, I have very kind of narrow ideas about what creativity should happen in the studio. That's a little different. And uh, it's usually, it's tied a little bit with economics a bit. Um, it's a bit flexible, usually having to do with how much time people can spend in the studio. Uh, my usual paradigm is I think it's nice when people are what I call 80% prepared. So mm-hmm. I like the fact, I like people coming into the studio with like maybe 80%, so eight out of 10 songs, totally ready to go. Like literally rehearsed, one take, well, maybe two takes, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, um, old, like like old but good, you know, songs that they've played every which way, you know, on the highway, right? So they've played it with different drummers at different tempos, different instrumentation, different places, you know? So it's like every possible permutation has been sort of like hammered out and they're ready to go. And usually those are the hardest hitting songs on a record. So I find that, like for instance, with the Dresden Dolls, um, you know, their song, uh, which did well for them, um, uh, Girl Anachronism, that would had already even been released on an EP. It was already out there. So that's an mm-hmm. example of a, it was a very lo-fi EP. So that's why we felt comfortable just redoing it. Yes. Um, but that's a song that they were already almost bored with. They were always like, well, we're more interested in this other stuff. Like, yeah, but that's good. So that's an, that's a song that didn't even need a, a need, even didn't even need a lot of help. So when I have my druthers, uh, in sort of like exploratory, like rock based music, um, maybe two songs out of an album leave room to sort of come together in the studio a bit, you know, where maybe, maybe it is okay if the lyricist, if the singer is still writing the lyrics during the recording, <laughs> you know, usually I don't like seeing that. So that's the thing in terms of the crit. Like, I don't like, I'm like, Oh God. So the lyrics aren't even written. <laughs> oh shit. But we're recording the record. I don't like seeing that, you know, but on most of the songs, but if there's like two songs where that's the case. Um, so maybe even, cobbled out of some improvisations or just something like that where it's like not completely solid and then they're trying to figure out who's even going to sing the song or something something weird like that stuff is kind of nice because it gives a it gives a song it gives an album a little more breadth rather than like bam here bam 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 and he's like oh soft it's yeah. a soft hit where it's like not so bam in your face and come you know that it's it's sort of like um not like an obvious like whoa must listen potential hit or what you know whatever it is like a, like like a little less right there like something about it, it's a little vague and maybe meandering maybe it's a little longer like it has, it's not that efficient the efficiency monster hasn't come in to make it like efficient and like crisp and like the right length and all this stuff it's sort of like so i think that that helps give an album breadth it's not maybe the most important songs on a record um this sort of the, maybe the the album tracks as they say it's the ones in the middle somewhere um, but also I think that, that those are songs that potentially involve me as a co-producer a little bit more, right? So those are ones, since there's room for ideas, where maybe I might have a few ideas or I might have a little bit more of an influence. But usually the songs that are ready, ready to roll right out of the starting gate and always end up being more the ones that capture people's attention, those usually I stay out of the way. If anything, I stay out of the way and just barely come up with any ideas and just make sure it's mixed and put together right and you know a few a few choices here you know but yeah. those I, those i don't do much on excellent excellent and just just last thing i mean just just very brief um well it doesn't have to be brief but um yeah if you were able to tell your like 16 or 18 year old self yourself you know just a little bit of advice that you've learned from the decades of 
being here and, you know, wisdom and experience and ups and downs. Is there anything that you'd have loved to have whispered in their ear that just to have helped them even more in their journey? I just wonder if there was anything in particular that you thought, yeah, God, that would have been handy. Or, you know, you could just say, yes, keep doing this because that would be fine. Um, well, I think I would have... Um wished and hoped I could be be more communicative. I, I feel I've been pretty communicative, but I've also maybe been too guarded in the past, you know, and been maybe, um, I forgive myself, you know, I was also very young, um, but, you know, I felt like I could have uh, I've made more of an effort or had, but also you can't make, sometimes you can't make an effort. You have to have the, the skills or the, it has to be the instincts for them. But I mm. wish I would have been able to to sort of uh, have deeper relationships with a lot of the people I've worked with. Um, I feel like I, I kind of didn't. I have deeper relationships with the people I work with now mm -hmm. than I did um, in my early 20s. I feel like in my early 20s, I kind of just skipped, skipped along on the surface and um, had some relationships, but um, was sort of a bit flaky, you know, like I, I, sh I should have like stuck with some relationships more or I should have gone a little, you know, gone a little uh, a deeper, hung out more, like actually just engaged more socially because yeah. I got married. At a, I got married at a very early age. I got married when I was 19 and I stayed married until I was like 31 or 32. So I had a bit more of a home life. Yeah, really. Um, so I, I went out, but I honestly I would have gone out more. So if I could, if I could whisper in my teenage year, in my teenage year, I probably would have gone out more to like <laughs> the mud club or the. I mean, how often did I go to the mud club? I mean, I think generously you could say it was once once a month. Yes, you know, could it could have been more. I could have gone more. I could have gone more to. I could have gone to more things that I heard of. I felt I went out a lot, but still, I was also in Gowanus. I was out here in Brooklyn. And I didn't go into Manhattan that much, yes. um, you know, a couple times a week, I guess. But I could have, so I could have gone to more clubs. I could have developed more of like better communication. I mean, I know there's a limit to how many close friendships you can have. But I think I could have um, uh, been a bit more there. And I think that would, I think that would have been better. Like, for instance, why, why did I never even keep in touch with Brian Eno, for instance? You know, it's also very true that I was like, what, 19 years old? Yes. But he was super, he was super nice to me. He had me over for tea, right? So why wouldn't that have been kind of at least keeping up some sort of rapport with him? But, you know, I think my guard was up. I felt insecure. Yes. Right? He was, he was uh, worldly older. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm, gl I'm glad I don't have to. When he was gone, I felt like, well, at least now I don't have to feel inadequate all the time. <laughs> you know, so I wish I would have. So, yeah, I wish I would have gone, gotten over myself and, and yes. gone a little deeper on some of these relationships. That, that's what I would, I would have been more mature, but I don't know if I could have told my 16 year old self that. Yes. And the other thing I would have done is I would have uh, ventured more into live playing because I didn't really realize until like night until like 2007 that I should really have a, 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 a sort of side of my life where I, I kind of tour and I do more like live performances. And that, that, that was prompted by the whole kind of collapse of the music industry, which happened I guess around 2006 or something mm. before the, before the financial crisis, before the financial crisis was the whole Napster downloading crisis and the whole change of the culture. And it really, see, well, as soon as music started being demonetized, um, that's when um, there was less 
interest in even recording albums. And this was before, before vinyl. So mm. when vinyl, when vinyl came along, it really rejuvenated, really was a godsend for studios in a way, because people were recording albums, whereas before people had to do, because when you used to do an album, it, it ups the ante, right? Because it's, it, it's, you're investing a lot more in not only making the album, but then you release the album. Vinyl LPs are expensive to make. Mm-hmm. So it ups the whole thing. So then it behooves you to make me make better quality. Also, since vinyl is supposed to be about quality, right? So yeah. it's supposed to be more of an audiophile experience. So it behooves you to make a better sounding recording. So it really, um, so so the the advent, the return of vinyl really um, kind of re-energized the prospects of of like the the studio recording business. Because for a minute there, even though the, even though the studio was sustaining, it, it wasn't clear that there was a future because it seemed like everyone's got home home studios. People don't care that much about quality that they stick it up as an MP3 or something. They don't care about albums because it's more mm. about single single downloads. So like single songs are back rather than like downloading a whole album, unless it's mm. a band you're a huge fan of. So if yes. you're if if it's a band you're a huge fan of, yes, you'll download the whole album. But just if it's a band you just saw the other night or just kind of curious about, maybe just download one song. In the past, you have to doubt. In the past, you'd have to buy the whole album pretty much, either. right? So so. Um, uh, that's when I started playing live more when I was like, you know what? I've really got to broaden my horizons here because who the hell knows? And then that realized it's like, I can't just be all about the studio. And that's when I started doing more live shows personally. And then started loving doing that. And in some ways I wish I'd taken more opportunities. It was the, the, the opportunities were offered for me to do shows or go on tour, like way back in the eighties. Yeah. And I didn't do them. I didn't do them because I was so happy being in the studio all the time that I wish I could maybe whisper in my ear, like maybe, maybe hit some stages, you know? Yeah, well, look, Martin, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing, actually. And um, I must stream your film as well. I haven't actually seen it. So that's that's a bad, bad one, isn't it, really? I think I can oh, okay. stream it from the UK. But um, yes, it does look amazing. But thank you ever so much for your time. And if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always use it on your social media platform sites that you might use. But um, yes, this is amazing. Uh, and uh, thank send you. Send me the again. link and I'll, and I'll amplify. Okay, look, have a great day and I'll probably go to bed. But anyway, look, thanks again. Thank you, David. Bye. And that is me in conversation with Martin BC talking about his studio, which is BC Studios. Um, Do check it out. Just Google it. Um, Yes, well done if you got to the end of that interview. I know, editing, I don't know the word. Anyway, look, this has been C86. I probably said that already. But uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, one of them, or all of them. Just do C86 show, you'll find it. Keep it positive, otherwise don't bother. And also these have all been archived. (laughs) Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on the usual sites like um, iTunes, Podbean, and also Spotify. I know, that's me. Anyway, look, have a great night or week. Stay safe.